Graham Rowntree has been announced as uh, the new coach of Munster Rugby. That was such a big momentum changer for me. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. It's half past seven. You're welcome along to OTB AM. It's Owen and Johnny with you right the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. There is Champions League to talk about. We're going to have Graham Hunter with us to chat about that. There is Hurling to talk about. We're going to have Tommy Welch with us to go through that. There is also a Katie Taylor bout to preview. Brian Campbell is stateside and is going to help us preview that. And there is Gaelic football to chat about and some big news from the football pod coming your way. So Tommy Rooney, the leader of the football pod gang, will be with us to look at that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Off The Ball or you can comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're getting us. Johnny Ward, a very good morning to you. Morning, all. What did you make of that game last night? Is this uh, thing dead? Yeah, um, it was probably dead at nil all in some respects, I think. You know, if you look at the... Did, 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 did Villarreal have a shot on target? It was so... No, once. did one shot on target, which I think is the joint lowest since statistics began for Champions League semi-finals. Yeah, um, and, you know, you have to add some sympathy for them. When they did have a possession... Um, which was very very rare, but even that even that nil all when they had possession, um, you, you felt for their players because they were just swamped straight away. They had no time in the ball, um, trying to create kind of half chances around the box. Liverpool's application and um, their work rate and they're just con- you know continuity of um, attacks and eventually wearing them down. It was it was very impressive and. Uh, you know, even at nil all, you're thinking Villarreal come out in the second leg. Um, if they play at all, Liverpool are just going to punish them here. There was a massive, massive gulf. Um, I don't watch Spanish football that much, but uh, Liverpool were so far superior to them. Um, it's just the other semi-final now that's in the melting pot. That's what's interesting because I think Liverpool will beat Real. I think they're a fair bit better than Real. City is, City's going to be interesting, but um, it was noted in some of the papers this morning Jordan Henderson um, came up with the goods and obviously it was a bit of a fluke of a goal but he just epitomises everything about that team and Liverpool seem to have like so many leaders compared to Man United it's just strange how how a club could be so well managed compared to their big rivals um, uh, in Manchester being so badly managed and Liverpool Every every player who comes in, like you look at Kanate, what the defender that he's become, and um, you know the Diaz coming in, they just they just take to it. And Klopp seems to do his character vetting really really uh, well on players that come in, and even Salah is probably not in the form maybe that he was in earlier in the season, but he doesn't need to be. Doesn't need to be, and set up Mane for that. Like that chance at the start was very, I thought it was very um, similar to De Bruyne's. Opening goal, um, which almost seems like a long time ago now that, that it was such a good game. That that beautiful left-footed in-swinging cross for Mane. Some of Mane's play, I mean, at the moment he did he did this pass to um, Salah afterwards, kind of without looking outside of the right foot down to the right hand side. Um, it's just amazing, amazing quality. And as much as Salah didn't score, then to to set up Mane for the goal, um, borderline offside that they got right. Um, it's just very hard I think as a defender and as a defensive unit to just keep stopping Liverpool even when 
when uh, Thiago hit that amazing strike by the way how good is he to watch at the moment like Liverpool are just, just from top to bottom they're amazing to watch when Thiago rattled the post that was unbelievable what a strike and remember Thiago like it took Thiago a while with injuries to get going for Liverpool really the quality he has but he actually started kind of getting the crowd going afterwards yeah. which I thought was you don't associate that with the European night in Anfield and this morning we might talk about like Champions League semi-finals that take place this yeah. two place weeks but um yeah, it was just uh, eventually the crowd sort of did get going and the place opened up. Um, and the Liverpool fans at the moment, they're just living in dreamland. I remember being a, a diehard Liverpool fan when I was a kid, as much as you can be in the west of Ireland. And like the, so far off Man United and thinking, when are we going to get so close again? And um, You don't well, strike me as a diehard Liverpool fan now. No, no. I what, just, what changed? League of Ireland, yeah. Just um, went to go United game. They were like... Can't you do both? Yeah, and I did for a long time, um, and I'd still, I still, I still have a great fondness for Liverpool. My my um, brother and father. It's just a thing in our house all the time since I was a kid. That when Liverpool play, we watch Liverpool, and um, it's still a special thing in the house. That when Liverpool play, everyone watch Liverpool. Um, but I suppose I don't. Know, I became when I was younger. I just became mad into the League of Ireland. Liverpool then were a second team, and uh, I'd still. Like they'd be the team that I'd be rooting for, but obviously the League of Ireland took over. I I think it's perfectly normal to have two or three teams and be more into Liverpool than I am. But um, the League of Ireland, I was it was just strange. I went to like the League of Ireland first division game, three hundred people at it on a horrible night, bad conditions, bad football, and fell in love with it for some reason. Yeah, don't know yeah. why. Probably because of you were you were one of um you were a higher percentage of the capacity than you would have been at say a, a Liverpool game at home watching on the television. Yeah. But, we like, can, I guess we can talk about like who goes to these games now and t- we'll, says that that photo or whatever. We'll get into that in, in just a moment. Mm-hmm. But what last night kind of uh, said to me is that th- this idea of the, the role of a manager and the, the importance of, of a football manager and, you know, holding up somebody as a scapegoat for a defeat after big defeats or, or big wins can sometimes just be a totally futile exercise mm-hmm. because there's a chance that last night... Villarreal played the perfect game. We don't know because there was just such a huge gulf between these teams or it seemed that there was a huge gulf between these teams last night that no matter what they did, this Liverpool wave was going to happen to them and Liverpool could have won that game 4-0 last night they had a couple of goals ruled out like I mean that Henderson volley in, in the first half mm. could have uh, snuck in at the, the near post by and large I mean like I think you can look at what Villarreal did and said could this team have set up any better could they have got maybe they could have got more than uh, a single shot off but I think there's a, every opportunity to, to say that they they played close to their limits last night and it's like do you then look at you know the, the the managerial setup there? Do you look at the, the coaching setup and use that by extension to look at other clubs when they have a defeat and say that's the manager's fault? They couldn't have done any better, or they could have done a lot better there with a better setup to try and maximise their potential. And I think they're probably just the last time was just an example that sometimes that is just a completely futile point. The mm-hmm. idea of blaming things on a manager or, or can they be getting more out of the resources that they have? Well, it, that brings. Ken- Ken Early's article on Monday to mind about the way Lampard set up in the Derby game, um, which I didn't really agree with because, like Everton, as much as they rode their luck, could have gotten results and probably should have had a penalty. And they're vastly, vastly inferior to Liverpool. Um, but Villarreal were even more inferior, really, last night. They were they literally had you could tell in possession they had next to nothing to offer. Like so, it wasn't a, if if. It was nil all at half time, and you know you have to say Liverpool should have been ahead in the first half, but they didn't have that many chances in terms of a dominant team. And the longer it would have gone on in the second half, Villarreal, I think they take a one nil defeat happily, um, and the, the second goal is kind of fine margins. But I mean, oh, they were so inferior. I mean, I, I can't see how they would have set up and done much different. And Ken Early's article was suggesting that Lampard's 
taken the game as if not obsolete rather anachronistic it's like we, we dig in and we kind of like they had hardly any possession it was like let's scrap for something here but they they did kind of they, they could have gotten something out of the game and like Liverpool are just steamrolling teams so it's not easy um, and the, the importance of being a manager I mean I was writing about the for the match programme for the Galway United Longford match programme just going back to when Stephen Kenny became the Longford manager and completely changed the club from top to bottom Klopp looks to have done that at Liverpool as well it's just like it's the most important role and you know you do think of the post-Klopp and post-Guardiola eras at Man City and Liverpool there'll be bad jobs to get in many respects because like how would you replace Klopp you know look at Ferguson I think Fergie was even at Punchestown yesterday I think he might have been interviewed at Punchestown Um, and his his, you know, his shadow still really hangs over that club in many respects because he was irreplaceable in some respects, and um, it's just been every job, every job since Ferguson looks better with time because the one after it was even worse. If that makes sense, nobody's yeah. replaced him, and nobody could. Um, and you know, who will replace Klopp? Because it'll be, it'll be impossible. It'll be impossible what he's done to that club. It, like it'll be, I would say more obvious at Liverpool than it will be at Manchester City for very obvious reasons the absence of Jurgen Klopp and that's mm-hmm. not to say that he is a better manager than Pep Guardiola or anything like that it's just because the club is set up in such a way that Manchester City are going to be sustainable and their success is going to be sustainable for a long long time mm-hmm. unless of course their uh, overlords decide that they, they're not interested in, in running a football club mm-hmm. anymore so I think, I think I think you're right that'll be very interesting to see what happens but then you look at say some of the backroom decisions that they've made or maybe the, the upstairs decisions that they've made in terms of recruitment in terms of scouting they seem to have got them all bang on. Mm. So can they make a good replacement for their all-time great one of their all-time great managers? You probably have to back them that they could they could pull it off. But mm. there's obviously the chance that you're gonna you're gonna come off to uh, you're gonna have a little bit of a tail off once once Klopp does leave, which is only natural. Loads of uh, reaction from Liverpool fans this morning. Good morning, boys. This is Paul McGee. The quad is in sight. If they win the lot, best Liverpool team ever. You'll never walk alone, Johnny Ward. He says, and he also says the flip side of a quad would mean. Losing FA Cup final, Champions League, and lose league by a point again. I'd be physically sick. Nightmare scenario. Like, I do think that there is a good appreciation amongst Liverpool fans, just pure anecdotal stuff, that this is an all-time great moment to be a Liverpool oh. fan. And that this just, just these journeys are amazing. Of course, when they look back at it, and if this team only has one Premier League, one Champions League, it will go down as an underachievement for the talents that they have and the manager that they have. But I still think that people are enjoying the now, even though they don't know how the season's going to turn out, which I think is probably oh, yeah. the joy of being a sports fan. I still, I mean, we had Lauro on whenever recently, and he was sort of saying he'd take the, I think it was Lauro, it was Laura Phil Thompson. I'm getting old here. I'm, I'm struggling. It was it was, a, it was a, a man with strong Liverpool uh, connections <laughs> anyway. And he was like, "We take the league," but you kind of think now they're favourites for the Champions League by virtue of the fact that they're they look essentially true, and Man City do not. So Liverpool are now would now be the most likely team of the three to win the of the four to win the Champions League. But I still say they they take the league and be able to celebrate in in in, in Anfield. Um, yeah, particularly the situation that they were in, like going into Christmas when it looked completely over um, I think regards to what Liverpool do this is a this has to go down as one of their greatest seasons ever even if they did, don't win anything else the, what they've done to this point to fight the wars and all those fronts to play this, the the standard of football like Liverpool never draw nil all like it just doesn't happen anymore there's just this, so much going on in all their games the quality of their attack and play how enjoyable they are ultimately how humble they seem to be as well as a team like they're you know a team of millionaires but they seem to have humility epitomised by Jordan Henderson and, and Klopp as well and 
they seem to um, just seem to be kind of a good squad of players, and um, you'd, you'd have to think they will win one other trophy now. Mm. Um, sp- speaking to Phil Egan, we'll be uh, talking football tomorrow with David Connolly, and is this the weekend for Liverpool where it, it decides whether because they still have Spurs at home, I think, but is this yeah. the weekend where Newcastle um, and Leeds come into the equation in terms of the champion, the title race? Ooh, yeah, mm. oh, gee, uh, Newcastle is definitely a tougher fixture, but uh, Manchester City have a tougher game next week to prepare for. Mm. The last nil all game that Liverpool were involved in, they ended up winning, of course, which is the Carabao Cup final this yeah. season. So, like, I mean, I before that, I don't know when was there the last scoreless draw. The, uh, ju- just on Kelleher as well. Sorry, we and I got slag for not mentioning or mentioning Bazuna yesterday, but Kelleher, um, there's a lot of scrutiny as to whether he should be at a different club or he should be playing more must be fairly cool to be part of that Liverpool setup. Like, he's a goalkeeper, so he could be playing for years. And I, I can completely see why he wants to be, albeit a bit part, why he wants to be part of that Liverpool squad, working with Alisson, working with those players day in, day out. Like, it's not the worst. Like, in terms of our... our we're journalists kind of struggling to make it in, in, a, in a tough game. Kelleher turns up for training at Anfield. What's that? Never, never made, made it. Never will either. Yeah. Um, well, it's me anyway. But Keller turns up at Anfield. He's like, I'm, that's my daily work is I go to work with Allison and Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp. So maybe I'm not playing every weekend, but it's not the worst life to have. The, the argument was that that maybe that education has been concluded at this point, that he's he's done a couple of seasons. He's uh, like with the lad in college in Galway for like 12 years. Just like, I just can't leave Galway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm still learning about life. I just love college too Galway. much. Some, the, the great Shane Supple, Shane, uh, I think he's having his stag in Galway and it was put, right. put, put to me, um, I think this weekend, okay. what are the bars to go to in Galway? I don't actually know Galway City. My out regions. Well. Shane Supple, yeah. Yeah, the great man, uh, tragically, um, not tragically, but in sporting tragedy, like retired very, very early. Brilliant, brilliant goalkeeper. Um, uh, but he's, uh, yeah, so if keep, keep an eye out for him in Galway this weekend. Uh, Colin Bowie wants to know your top five pubs in Galway. I, I, I don't really have five, but O'Connell's and... This is this is a tangent now, but three of my favorite pubs in the world are are called O'Connell's. One of them is in, in his, is in their square, which is they've turned it into a really cool outdoor area. It's is that f- the one at the outdoor area at the back? Yeah, yeah and great, I think you can, I think they have pizzas now. They, so yes. th- th- that that's a phenomenal pub. The other O'Connell's is on the Guinness ad in Screen, um, which you'll okay. even at the home of the blah blah blah. And the other O'Connell's. This sounds a bit like Roy Curtis now on Saturday when we were talking about his the gluttonous <laughs> lifestyle. The other O'Connell's is obviously O'Connell's of Richmond Street, which is like two minutes from here, which is like one of the hidden gems of Dublin. Um, so what was the question again? Top five pubs in Galway. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I don't actually stag. know Galway that well. I don't know. I've never lived in Galway City, which is probably good for Galway City and good for me. Um, but it's it's one place I'd, I'd love to have a stint in. Wow, that was a good piece. Your top five pubs in Galway, I don't know. Is yeah. like, I honestly don't. Word. I don't know Galway that well because I never yeah. lived there. But uh, what a like, but it certainly pull off the the knowledgeable Galway man uh, yeah. trope quite well. What, what are your top five in Galway? Well, I uh, th- I wouldn't know the name of You'd them. You'd know Dingle quite well. Uh, last time we had a pint was in Dingle, I think. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Other voices. Yeah. Need to sort the bartender out for that one. Actually, he wouldn't. <laughs> he, wouldn't <laughs> he wouldn't take money all, on the night. All these years <laughs> later. Yeah. Uh, as thirty two says, Fergie chose his successor knowing that Moyes wouldn't be up to the job securing his legacy. That is certainly the, the skeptical <laughs> view of it. And he also says, uh, Howard feeling City will do the double, 
Uh, and oh sorry I already read that no I didn't he just has the same feeling that City will do the double and Chelsea will win the FA Cup the League Cup will be a poor return for what Liverpool have done this season so it would be there is a, a, I think a constant churn of maybe just a, a little bit of paranoia about Liverpool not based on their performances but based on the fact that they're up against um, good opposition the just, Champions League final though if, presuming if it is the two of them which it likely will be albeit not certainly like you you, you really do think Liverpool have a great chance here like they're just they, they just do not lose games at the moment and you almost think it's almost 50-50 if they, if they get to it in a one-off and I think the FA Cup matchup between them granted mm. Edison's not playing and, and uh, Manchester City aren't playing their f- f- uh, full strength team that day I'm not sure that, that has to count for maybe 1 or 2% and that could be a little bit important in the mm. Champions League final the fact that they just disagree. beat them in, in, a, in a knockout game uh, just want to get to another storyline from Tuesday night which we actually didn't get to yesterday because it only emerged in social media maybe after the show which yesterday is. it was the reaction to Benzema's goal this is something that really annoyed you uh, Johnny I think. it was well in fairness I mean the, of course the irony of this is we're looking at a photograph of, of, of it um, do we have the photograph I presume we do maybe we don't it's a photograph of um, Benzema celebrating uh, his goal and what appears to be like almost a quarter of the Manchester City fans recording it on their phone yeah I'm like what? Like it's a Champions League semi final. It's not like you're, it's not like you're six nil up here and you can kind of take out the phone. And I, I don't know. Like phones are absolutely like in terms of technological advancements, they are incredible. Like your phone effectively does everything. Bar go to the toilet for you now. Like it do, it does everything pretty much. Like I've I've lost my bank card so many times. I'm embarrassed during the bank, and I've just stopped now because my phone does all that for me. It does directions. It does you know it does your banking. It does like um, all your communication. Does basically everything. Take turns your mind into mush. But like, why do you? What is the benefit of having a photo of Benzema wheeling away celebrating against the team you presumably support to have it on your phone and presumably put it on Instagram? Oh, look at me. I'm taking a photograph of an opposition player narrowing the gap in this in a Champions League semi-final that I want to win. I mean... What what have we become? Like, it's just... I don't know. I found it amazing. Maybe it's just a massive flex for Manchester City fans being like, this tie is over. We're through. It doesn't matter. Look at this novelty moment here. Panenka in front of us. We're still going to the Champions League final. How did Cuevin Keller, the aforementioned, how did he not deck the geezer who came on the pitch and tried to take a selfie of him in the Lithuania game? I mean, first of all, to come on the pitch, but then, then pose for a selfie. I think that was like the worst example of modern life ever until <laughs> until Tuesday night. And I've even not, even I'm on, I'm on the way into, into the office this morning and there's a lovely scene on the canal of the sun kind of creeping in among the trees. And my my thought is, oh, that'd be, that could make a nice Instagram photo. Did you take the have, picture? Have your, I, I did, I didn't put it on Instagram. It's like, that's, well, you're, that's just the, being an, you're being that's an idiot. That's a complete waste of time then. Yeah, I mean, it never even happened. It didn't. The sun didn't even shine because I didn't put it on Instagram. <laughs> Do you know what I mean though? It's like, even, even at the gig the other night, you're like, uh, uh, you know, it, it, wouldn't it be great to take a photo and put it on Instagram that I'm at a gig on a Tuesday night. Like, no. Just enjoy the gig. But I but I did and I put it on Instagram. It was a good photo as well. Gig it photos are not photo. easy to take. No. And I, I was I was right at the back. So, like, you know, there was a suggestion that phones should be banned from gigs, which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with. But I was right at the back and I was trying to be um, surreptitious in terms of low, the actual performers who've been on the go for 30 years and probably don't like Man City fans with their phones out or people with phones out at gigs. I was trying to do it on the QT so that I wasn't just another person with his camera out. Yeah. 
Are you? Do you get what I'm saying? Or a hundred percent. I actually mm. woke up from a nap yesterday thinking I want to get a block. Yeah, I deleted Twitter, Instagram, TikTok off my phone yesterday. I do this every so often. I don't oh. delete my account. I just delete it off my phone, so that way it's not in my pocket. Yeah, I have to go and get my laptop to actually go onto it. This is so boring. Um, my uh, social media habits, but well, yeah, well, tra- many, I think everybody goes through that, right? I, I don't think we're. I how think many? How many couples, right? They go to bed and rather than embrace uh, them, embrace each other or make love or whatever it is that couples do, they look at their phones and it's the first thing they do. In the morning and I'm telling you there are a lot more people doing that than you think yeah. um, and it's grim and I've said to myself a million times leave, leave your phone in the kitchen and you know don't use it as an alarm don't use it as the first thing and the last thing that you greet pre or post sleep and I still can't do that really yeah yeah. I, like, and your screen I'm, time how alarming would that be if you look up your screen time every day I don't do it because I don't want to be depressed about my life yeah 100% yeah I could probably live without the, the phone if it wasn't for maps as you say whatsapp and like social media, I could leave uh, off the phone, but I, I can't go. Your phone. It's become too, as you say, it's become too functional, not just social media wise. For You'd be for a total to be pariah. Like, yeah, you, I think Eamon Dunphy doesn't have a mobile phone. Like, and he's probably just saying, "Yeah, I'm not. I you ring me on my home phone or whatever." Yeah, but like, imagine, imagine going for a Who's job it? and saying, "What's your mobile?" I don't have a mobile actually. Is it Amanda Serrano, Katie Taylor's opponent this weekend? Doesn't have a doesn't have a mobile phone or else doesn't have a smartphone. I think that's one of the things I read about her. So, I mean, Kindred, Taylor, Kindred Spirits. Yes, we will have plenty of Katie Taylor content coming up later on. Just quickly running through some more your comments before we get to Tommy. Liverpool need to score first on Tuesday. This tie is far from over, says Stephen. Sean Carty says Dolbar in Galway is always a great night. Yeah. And good screens. Anna Carroll says Tafts, O'Connell's, Tig Coley, uh, Tig Nocton and the Crane. Easy. And Brenda Tourish says top five bars in Galway, Tig Coley, Crane Bar, Tig Nocton's, Tafts and O'Connor's. A bit of a common thread there yeah, coming through from the people who actually know what they're talking about when it yeah. comes to Galway. Uh, you're with us here on OTBAM at 7.51 OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And uh, let's tell you what's coming up over the next couple of hours here on the show. Tommy Rooney on standby. Big news coming your way. You don't want to miss this. Graham Hunter at 10 past 8. Tommy Welsh at half past 8. And the sports pages coming your way at 20 to 9. A news update with Colin Milani at 10 to 9. And that preview piece. Plenty of Katie Taylor between 9 and 10 for you. 10 past 9. Brian Campbell will be giving us the view stateside. And then Eric Donovan will be breaking down the fight and what Katie Taylor needs to do to upset the odds. Let's not forget, she is the outsider, according to, to a lot of bookmakers, going into this fight on Saturday night against Amanda Serrano. But right now, it is time to welcome Tommy Rooney to the show. Tommy, how are you getting on? Good morning, Owen. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning, how are you Tommy. doing? This is a big morning for you, Tommy. It's a big it It's a big day for OTBAM because we have been the show that have been graced with the exclusive on this news. Yes, Owen. Pretty big news. Um, we've been waiting for this moment for quite a while. I'm delighted to announce that the football pod is going on the road this summer. We're going to be hitting up a couple of venues. Johnny Ward, I hope to see you there one of the afternoons. We are going to be live on June 2nd. We are hitting the road. Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue and myself are going down to Castlebar in County Mayo to lift the spirits of a broken county. Well, what a place so to the... start. What a place. Like Mayo, is there a greater football like mecca in the, in the world, really? Right, what's the what's the mecca like? Is it as in like that? That is literally all that. It, like Mayo is just that's what they Mayo is football. It's incredible the support they have. I've never seen that. Could say it's the footballing knock of Ireland, <laughs> which is in Mayo actually. Is, yeah, yeah, it all comes together nicely. Where Very we true. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see, Johnny. And look at it's going to be on Thursday, June the second. This is what I'm really excited about. It's when the summer is really heating up. It's right before that June bank holiday weekend. The previous weekend we'll have all the the provincial finals, the four of them. The weekend after that, the weekend before the roadshow, 
the first round of the qualifiers that Mayo are in, that Armagh are in, that one of Derry or Tyrone are going to be in. It's going to be class. Um, we're really looking forward to it. It's in the Royal Theatre in Castlebar, which is a brilliant venue. Um, it's going to be Paddy, as, as I said. It's going to be James. We may have a Mayo legend there on the night as well. Ooh. So details to be revealed about that too. It's my guess. Details, details yeah. to be revealed TBC. about that yet. TBC. So tickets are on sale today <laughs> from 9am and we would love to see you there. You can check out Ticketmaster and search for the Football Pod Live and you'll find it. It's pretty cool, Johnny. If you go there right now, there's a countdown clock, an hour and five minutes. It's like we've been waiting for this moment. A live off-the-ball roadshow on the road. The GA events, they're back. And so. oh, the timing couldn't be better because I'm sure you, this is obviously deliberate, but uh, football qualifiers begin that weekend, the June Bank Holiday weekend. And of course, people of Mayo uh, limbering up for another epic journey through the couple of rounds of qualifiers before inevitably getting to an All-Ireland final again. Well, that's it, Owen. And like, you know, that, I think that's the weekend when the football championship is really going to take off. The Talchon Cup is kicking off in and around that time. Um, all the, that's when the knockout starts. That's when teams are going to, their journey is going to end. Qualifiers are back for the first time in two years. This year, it's different. We know that. They're going to be much more difficult than the Sam Maguire. There's only 15 teams, I think, max that can get in. Uh, maybe 17 if Tip and Cavan reach the provincial final. But... Um, it's going to be it's going to be an explosive week, and it's also the June Bank Holiday weekend. It's it's when the summer feels like it really begins for us. So um, we can't wait for it. We hope to see you there. The interest around the podcast has been brilliant for the last two years, so it'd be fantastic to see some of the fans and supporters and the listeners out in the night, and any Mayo people that are mad about their football, or indeed people from other counties that are interested in coming along. We will have other events in the summer, some exclusive events. Johnny mentioned football meccas counties that are crazy about their football we will be in a couple of other places so let us know if you want to see us in your town I see you've been robbing uh, Nathan Murphy's LOI late night idea as well for the Gaelic Games that uh, well to be fair to Nathan Murphy I think it was actually his idea to get it going um, on a Sunday night it's been pretty fun Johnny like it's, mm. it's good fun opening up the, the phone lines to people and listening into their thoughts um, I've listened to some of the League of Ireland stuff I love it I haven't caught many League of Ireland games this year, but I've listened to League of Ireland late night. He's a big fan of your stuff. On a Friday. Oh, yeah. Really enjoy your, your bus. Your bus is back home from the matches mm. and the, the bit of life and vigour that we get. Yeah. it's okay. the, the post-match stuff is good because, yeah, people are kind of raw and, you know, they, they don't have much time to think about things. No. I, I think that it, it's interesting. What, what we're probably going to end up uh, discovering over the course of the next few months is, like, the divergence in the psyche between the League of Ireland fan and the GEA fan. Is the GEA fan a more uh, stoic Irish, I'm going to keep my opinions to myself person, and is a League of Ireland fan a more heart in the sleeve? Yes, I will click the... Uh, let me speak button and let me get my opinions away I think it'll be an interesting social study over the course of Hopefully the next few months from so, in Galway yeah so Tommy will be uh, leading the charge on that one so it is your, you're right Tommy that is going to be the weekend where the football championship is going to spring into life it's going to be a weekend where hopefully the sun is out leaving cert weather around that time I presume so you want yes, to get your tickets exactly. for that so Castlebar into the uh, into the June Bank holiday weekend is going to be an absolute cracker brilliant news so that's coming your way over the course of the next little while make sure to listen to the football pod every week for I mean week to week brilliant analysis and this week Tommy I dare say it's all about the dubs kicking off this weekend because in the back pages as I'm sure you've seen over the last couple of days it's been about James McCarthy getting the captaincy mm. and Conor Callaghan making his return 100%. I think we have a little clip here, Owen. Like we, it was a busy weekend. I'd love to talk a bit about Galway with Johnny um, because they obviously caught Mayo in a very interesting way. But we obviously got talking about that in the football pod this week. But Paddy Andrews couldn't help himself. He got very, very excited. Have a listen. Dublin kind of got on the radar. 
Is Conor Callum back? I hope so. I bloody hope so. It's been what, what four weeks or five? It'll be five weeks since Dublin played uh, Monaghan and Clonus in that league game. So <sighs> there was talk that he was around the squad at that point. So you're hoping that, yeah, the offensive side of things was a little bit suspect towards the end of the National League. So looking at to tidy those things up. Um, they've had, like say, a month to kind of look at things. Dublin get things right, lads. Now, biased and all that stuff, they are in the mix. They need to get the things right, but we'll get a glimpse on Saturday and see where they're at. I expect them to win the game comfortably, but there are certain things that they would be looking to get out of this performance. And definitely the king back on the square will be a massive plus for them. The king back in the square. Well, the wolf is certainly back. The dubs haven't been mentioned in about four weeks. It's great to have you back, mm. Paddy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm kind of with Paddy Andrews on this. Like I think that there is, by process of elimination, Dublin have slowly but surely risen up the ranks of who might actually win the All Ireland this year. Tommy, I think. <laughs> like I mean, I mean that by Mayo losing last week and may, not Armagh. I think Armagh maybe were a bit below Dublin anyway. Come the end of the league, I felt just form wise. But it just kind of feels that people are looking around. And they're like, who's actually going to take this All Ireland if we accept that maybe Kerry haven't got the job done yet? Jerome with their players walking away and a Mayo being Mayo. I think you're right. I think it's been, in a way, a kind of funny couple of weeks. It's been such a tight turnaround from the league. We felt like a couple of teams tapered off at the end of the league. Kerry, as you said, are the only ones that have asserted themselves, but they obviously haven't done it yet. I do think that this is one of the most fascinating championships we've had in well over a decade. Oh, it 100%, like... Tommy. Like, Dublin are 7-2. to 7-2. Two. to two. Like, Dublin yeah. were pretty much odds on year after year after year. They're 7-2. They're nowhere near favourites. And you look at even the likes of Galway now thinking, we have a chance here. You have seven or eight teams who could think realistically we, we could at least be thereabouts. Yeah, 100%. And it's like, as you said, Galway now have opened the door for themselves. Could they have a repeat of a summer like 98? I put that out the other week and I got shot down. I feel like it was a couple of Mayo fans that came out of the woodwork after Sunday's beating... But like, you know, Dublin, how can you write off Dublin? Really like. Well, the parallels as well, like the, the, just the parallels, I think Sean O'Dupere, RT had a piece about the, the, the renaissance of Connick football in the in the 90s and Sean O'Dupere said that for him, if it weren't like one of the most enjoyable games or one of the biggest games of his life was in 98 when they won in Castle Bar and that was an amazing game of football. Kieran McDonald rattling the crossbar and um, I, I there was a feeling that day as a Galway fan, I was young, there was a feeling that day that as much as it was really, really early on the championship, we could be on a journey here because we went to Castlebar and won. It wasn't, uh, I'm kind of literally speaking as I'm uh, looking this up, but the uh, 20 or 1998 Connacht Football Championship was also, yes it was, that Roscommon Galway epic over yeah. two games. Yeah. So like, I mean, there is that chance that that happens again this year and it was getting absolutely, not beaten up, but really put to the pin of their collar by Roscommon that year that allowed Galway to, to go on and achieve that. And like, that's my whole point this week as well when, like people are getting in touch with me asking for the Excel sheet on the formula for uh, the power rankings because how can Mayo be uh, ahead of Galway mm-hmm. in, in the rankings and I just want to see the next phase on this like I, I want to see the next phase of, of what Galway do next which is beating Ross Common after losing to them twice and I accepted those two games are nowhere near as important as the game that is probably going to be fixed for that for this year's Connacht final so I think there's real excitement around this Galway team but it's just really interesting to see what they do next because the people Definitely. who are giving out to you on Twitter Tommy are basing it on 2016 and to a certain extent maybe 2018 I know Mayo got dumped out in the qualifiers in 2018 but it has always felt to me that no matter what Galway do to Mayo and Connacht Mayo will come good in the All-Ireland Championship there's every chance this year is going to be different but we just Mm. don't know 
Yeah. And I think they're also looking at that last five minutes of the game, Owen, where Mayo very nearly caught Galway. But I think the important thing is there that Mayo didn't catch Galway. I think Galway's games manage, game management in that game, their cynicism, their ability to learn from their mistakes last year when they were six points up at half time, Mayo come out and smashed them. But you're totally right. Roscommon, on the other side of the draw, they're playing Sligo this weekend. They are eyeing up another Connacht final. The one thing I would say about Mayo and the qualifiers this year, as you mentioned, they could get an Armagh in the next round. They could get a Tyrone in the next round if they don't get the job done against Derry. James O'Donoghue is making no uh, qualms about it on the football pod. He says that Kerry are out-and-out favourites. They should and they could win the All-Ireland this year. But if they don't, he's tipping Donegal for Ulster and Tyrone for the All-Ireland. And I found that very interesting. Right. That's interesting. James O'Donoghue mm. uh, has been accused by his uh, co-host of being... Uh, anti-Tyrone and his bias. He's obviously changed a little bit. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that as well because I, I feel that the Tyrone uh, departures have yet to catch up with them on the scoreboard and in terms of results. And maybe that will happen eventually, but it's not like they're going to go through a series of games where they have to play back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Uh, like mm. if, if they go through the front door especially, they should have a number of weeks off and I think that those tired bodies isn't going to be an issue and squad depth may not be as much of a problem as we think it might be. Yeah, it, it's it's going to play itself out over the next couple of weeks. I'd agree with you. I'd have suspicions about the squad depth because it was so important last year. McShane, Canavan coming off the bench, Tierney yeah. McCann in the All-Ireland Final, Paul Donaghy come off the bench in the All-Ireland Final. That was so important to them. And some of those players don't look like they're they're flying properly yet. But that's it's very early days. Like The dubs are back this weekend. And the exciting thing from Paddy there was about James McCarthy being back. Possibly. There was talk yesterday he's going to be captain for the year. I think he's a great fit. But also the possibility that Conor Callan is back. Like, we talk about Dublin being contenders. The one caveat is if Conor Callan is there, Dublin are in the absolute mix. 100%. Well, like, see, the thing, the thing about Conor is that it's just he's so unbelievably destructive and he, he will be the centre of attention of your defence that all of a sudden Dean Rock is more of an option from play, Cormac Costello is more of an option from play, Niall Scully's runs are, are more dangerous because you've got your best defender and your entire defence really focused around how do you stop Khan like that that for me is the the, the real uh, story here for, for the dubs is that it will be a rising tide for all of those forwards and it is just one piece of the jigsaw but it will to a, to a degree kind of complete that, that forward unit well, that makes Paul it Mannion though as well well if you had Paul well, Mannion obviously it would be better but yeah. well, so the, the, what, why would Dublin not win the All-Ireland is it, is it anti- like in the sense of how are they is, how is it a situation where they're not even considered certainties to win Leinster now like is this is, is there some cloud hanging over them that you can say they're kind of trolling us a bit in the league, but, like, is there just something not right under this management? And and I'm, I'm wondering this from, from afar, having not been, you know, um, watching it every week in the league, but, like, what's the feeling, Tommy? Well, I suppose the feeling is, Paddy, that, or Johnny, Paddy, there we go, Johnny, I'm calling you Paddy Anders with the glasses on, that <laughs> 90 All-Ireland medals left that dressing room in about an 18-month 80, period there with... All of the retirees, the players have stepped away. Last summer, there was definitely a cloud around Stephen Cluxon. Is he or is he not available? Like those questions have never ever properly been cleared up. Do you know? Mm. Um, and I think the the doubts that are there are because we had never seen Brian Fenton lose a championship game of football. He's played football championship football for Dublin since 2015. He did not lose a game until last summer against Mayo in the championship. So, like, of course now there's questions. I was probably the lone wolf crying out that the dubs are falling apart when Mead had a mini comeback against him in the second half last year. I was swatted away on the power rankings. 
ultimately I was proven wrong because they were knocked out but I thought I was seeing chinks in the Dublin No you're right you're like when 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 Colm O'Rourke said at half time against Mayo we may as well go home that's what that's where Dublin were and that psychological Mm. collapse for me is very hard to get your head around in that how did how did they resort to the desperation of that second half I I I just I it was for me it was one of the most compelling sporting experiences you'll see to see a team that is so high just resort to that and it, it was inexplicable yeah it was incredible I, I don't know if it's inexplicable if you drill down into it because mm. Dublin's success and reading Bernard Brogan's book a couple of years ago like the ferocious intensity of their A versus B games their squad in between the all Ireland final replay and I think that last 15 minutes against Kerry in 2019 is possibly the crowning moment of this Dublin side they were a man down they were losing to Kerry this young Kerry team that were looking for an All-Ireland and somehow they managed to keep play keep ball with a man less and get an equaliser in injury time. Bring the game to a replay. And Bernard Brogan spoke about trying to break into the 26 for the following weekend and how difficult that was. And the, the level of quality that they had in their B team. They had Ono Gara, Paddy Andrews, Bernard Brogan. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get started. So like, if they're the options you have on the bench, Kevin McMiniman, Cormac Costello, they're the options that you have to bring on when the game is in the melting pot. When, you know... The, the, the Mayo second half ha- happens last year. Dublin were always able to call on footballers of the year to come off the bench and save them. They couldn't anymore. It's a different profile. It's players that haven't done it before. I'm not saying they're not going to do it again. I feel like we're going to see All-Irelands again for Kieran Kilkenny and Conor Callaghan and Brian Fenton. They're too good not to win All-Irelands again. But will we ever see that dominance of not losing the championship game in six years? Well, I don't th- think so. I, th- I think that there is uh, a level of that collapse against Mayo which is still inexplicable. Because, say you put Dublin up against any team in this mm. year's All-Ireland Championship, what would the maximum handicap be for Dublin? So say you put them up against Kerry, who are favourites for the All-Ireland right now, what would the handicap be on that? Three points? Yeah. They two. were six points up against Mayo at half-time. So that's not necessarily a collapse that you could predict as a result of a lack of depth in the squad. A six-point mm. collapse, given the position they were in, is still inexplicable in, in my view. And I... I Colm O'Rourke just happened to be on national TV so mm. he's, he's he, the man he was who looks, saying what everyone else thought exactly like, yeah. he, he doesn't look fool- everybody looked foolish uh, mm. after that and uh, like I, I think that there is still a bit more to be found out there and I think that this season will tell us a lot I actually think Tommy this weekend will will tell us something it's not it's far from going to tell us the whole picture but I still think this weekend when they have to play a team that they're expected to beat handsomely uh, will they be back to like that 2017-2018 level of ruthlessness don't see it yeah don't see, I it's don't on TV. Know, yeah, yeah. yeah I, the, like, the handicap coming is in on the high as well. Kind 13, of like, right. Yeah. The, the handicap is 13 points. I, 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 I would, I would not expect right. Dublin to cover that. I would not expect Dublin to cover There's nothing at all this year to suggest they're going to cover that. I, I'd agree a few with moments you, at, the, at the end of the like obviously Wexford were, were good last week but you're still talking about a Division 1 team versus mm. a Division 4 team and the team that did manage to survive at the end of, of Division 1 managed to like say look at the first half against Tyrone maybe is mm. thing you could look at in, from the league this year as something that could say that they could rack up a big score yeah. by and large maybe not but yeah. there's, like, there's definitely doubts in the squad definitely um, there's confidence issues but they, they could iron that out very quickly lads it doesn't take much for a team and a squad of players to click and for things to go right for them. Look at what happened to Tyrone last year. Hockey down in Killarney against Kerry. And they got it right. They got it together. A group of people moving in the same direction is powerful stuff when it all comes together. Briefly on Galway as well. Like, just in, in reflection of the game, and you're on about Galway and the cynicism, which you wouldn't necessarily associate with Galway football, but maybe that they needed, Tommy. But to see an exponent of the kicking game that Paul Conroy is 
to see mm. him shine uh, after a little bit of a wobble sort of in the middle third of the game I just thought it was he is the most quintessential Galway footballer in terms of the way he plays I just thought it was lovely to see someone um, who's had you know bad injuries to have the role that he had and the beauty of the kick pass yeah, Johnny, like Conroy has carried that go with him in many ways for the last number of years. Joyce said a couple of weeks ago, they need more than Paul Conroy doing it. My favourite thing, as you said about Conroy, was that from his first five shots, he was one from five. Two wides, two short, one point. But he, he kicked two massive scores in that second half. Um, And like even Shane Walsh wasn't that involved. Mm. But he had his moments and he delivered. Those points that he scored, those frees, they were clutch moments. They were huge and they sucked the life out of Mayo. And you mentioned cynicism, game management that we mightn't have associated with them before. It's all the winners have it. The Dubs had it when they were on that amazing run. New Zealand had it. Every great team has a streak of that. I'm not saying Galway are that yet, but they've opened the door for themselves. And that is the fascinating thing about this championship. Donegal have put their hands up. Galway have now put their hands up. They have to prove it. Dublin can prove us wrong. Tyrone can prove us wrong. Mayo can come through the back door. It's going to be fascinating. We'll, we'll know a lot more come uh, June 2nd. Well, that there's way, a roadshow. Yeah, yeah there's a roadshow where we can actually cast our eye over it. And, and, it's so and exciting. Yeah. I, honestly, Mayo, yeah. Mayo people are so, like, this could be sold out at 10 past nine and that's Castle Bar people alone. Like, Yeah. Well, Johnny, I think you're right. And that is the thing. Like, if you go on to Ticketmaster right now, there's a countdown, 49 minutes until you can get your tickets. Um, go get them. We'd love to see you there in the night. And uh, we'll have, we'll put on a great show Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue, I'll be there. There'll be a couple of other special guests and uh, events on the night as well. So looking forward to it and hopefully we see you there. Yeah, absolutely. Tommy, I regret to inform you we do not have time to preview Mead against Wicklow. I've oh, put aside no. a couple of hours for it. Uh, Mead to win by how many? Give us a number. Well, like lads, Wicklow had an unbelievable win last week. Kevin Quinn scored a hat-trick. Talk about being on a high. Mead are coming into this game cold. I saw comments from Andy McIntyre earlier on that they have to be ready for championship. By God, do they have to be ready for championship this weekend? Um, they have home advantage. The last time they played Wicklow, they racked up. I think they scored seven goals. But other games over the last decade have been quite close yeah. between the two counties. I'm not giving you a handicap here. Maybe See, tomorrow on the quick picks. Need by a billion is what Tommy Rooney is saying. Tommy, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Johnny. So take a master and search for the Football Pod Live. Wick- Talk to you soon. Wicklow has a bigger population, I think, than Mayo, which is um, interesting. Why Why has... With the great underachievers. Yeah, because we were, we were talking about like Cork and Kerry yesterday, but Wicklow's an interesting one. It just doesn't have that tradition. <laughs> we'll be talking about Wicklow's finest later on in the show, of course. Uh, it's just that uh, it's a boxing yes. county. Yes, it's uh, a boxing county. It is county, 12 yeah. minutes past eight and we've got a packed show still to come on OTBAM. We'll hear from Graham Hunter on the Champions League next. But first, just a reminder that the first stop on the Football Pod Roadshow is a Royal Theatre Castle Bar on Thursday June 2nd where Paddy James and Tommy are going to dissect analyse and celebrate Mayo football as well as Championship 2022 in the usual football pod style plus you can expect a local legend or two to join the lads on stage so that's the football pod with Paddy and James Castle Bar June 2nd tickets are on sale from 9 o'clock this morning go to otbsports.com forward slash events to get yours today and you can stay tuned as well to OTB for details on uh, more shows to come as well Right, we are uh, turning our attention uh, to the Champions League right after these. OTB AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. FBD Insurance knows this sound spells trouble for van drivers. But if you're an existing FBD customer, you'll get 15% off a new van insurance policy. It's how we're keeping you and your van on the road. Visit fbd.ie or contact your local branch. FBD Insurance. Support. It's what we do. 
Terms and conditions apply. 15% discount available on new commercial motor policies only when an existing FBD farm, business, car or home policy is in place. FBD Insurance Group Limited, trading as FBD Insurance, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Commercial motor insurance is underwritten by FBD Insurance PLC. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. A13, you're very welcome back. It finished Liverpool 2, Villarreal nil in the first leg of their Champions League semi-final last night. Manchester City 4-3 up in the other semi-final as both teams now head to Spain next week. Graham Hunter is with us on the line. Graham, good morning to you. Hello. A couple of nervous Liverpool fans coming in touch with us this morning via the text message machine. Should they be nervous? Should they be a little bit cautious of what's about to come next week? Is it is this a typical media technique? Have you invented these these nervous um, it, Anfielders? They do not exist. So tell me, do this, not exist. Tell you me actually the texted there this you in yourself. You texted this in there yourself you to create some sort of a narrative. Liverpool need to score first on Tuesday. This tie is far from over, says Stephen. Just a, a look, example. Look, um, nerves just seem to be completely uh, misplaced. Liverpool went into the tie not only uh, distinctly the better eleven and the better squad, but with. Um, Power play mentality, a, a tempest tempo football, allied to all their good coaching, allied to their physical and aerial advantage over Villarreal. And from that, it was easy to juice. If I've been covering Villarreal, obviously in general for for twenty years, but um, this season I've been the correspondent for uh, UEFA for them and. One of the big things about um, the Arsenal semi-final win last year, the sem- the final in Dansk where they beat Manchester United, and then the majority of the four matches, four games against Bayern and, and, and Juventus, none of those teams played at the relentless pace, either with the ball or without the ball, as, as Liverpool exampled last night. I think Liverpool fans, the real ones, not these invented nervous ones, We'll say that, for example, compared to the Merseyside derby, Liverpool found an edge in almost everything that they did last night. They found more space. They found Villarreal probably slower to the to the breakdown to any second ball um, than they had Everton, which was what I think it was the same scoreline, but but probably a little bit more constipated. What you would say about uh, Liverpool is that if they mirror that level of performance. Never mind the goal scored in the Madrigal. It's really difficult to see them losing even 2-0 and going to extra time. Now, that is not to take away from Villarreal that, number one, on their home patch, where they will play differently, and I don't mean in terms of performance level, they will play positionally differently. They'll probably play a 4-3-3. It's imperative that Gerard Moreno isn't simply fit to get on the pitch, but match fit. There's a possibility of that. He was rested last night from the bench even just as a precaution because he's that important. But the, the absolute key factor is that as, as good as Liverpool were, and there's there's not a millimetre of me trying to strip credit from them, because I thought they were extremely impressive, extremely relentless last night. A, a minor break in, in the deflection of the Stupinian. Villarreal played really badly. Villarreal played beneath their par. People who criticise him for being ultra-defensive. They couldn't get out. They couldn't. I think the plan that, that Emery admitted he came up with, which was Chukwesi as a second striker with uh, Danjuma rather than Chukwesi wide, 4-4-2 to try and 
not be overcoming midfield and, and to put the ball long and behind Liverpool. It never looked close to being right. They never really altered it. But Emery's plans have been a real factor of how they've progressed in Europe over the last two seasons in two different competitions. And and therefore, it, it was a deeply under-par night from Villarreal. And thus, they escape only 2-0. Last time they were Anfield, they, they were pumped 3-0 and knocked out of the semi-final. The, the Barca game is an example of what even a leading Spanish side who are off form can receive at Anfield. So I think 2-0 is going to eventually prove definitive. But Villarreal were, were massively under par last night. And I think the minimum we can all expect is in the Madrigal uh, next week. I'll be there. Um, it will be much more entertaining. It'll be more of a contest. Mm. It's interesting then if, if we kind of grandfather Liverpool into the final here. Granted, it may, it may not be 100% assured just yet. We were ha- having a bit of a debate yesterday about you know, the, the certainty that Manchester City are definitely the team that Liverpool don't want to get in the final. Well, like, what's your take on that? Of course, Manchester City are, are a better squad than, than Real Madrid and, and probably a better team. But is there something a little bit about the, I guess, the, the pure stubbornness of Ancelotti and his players to just not go away, to just completely exist in a game, even if it looks like their second best, that could cause Liverpool potentially more problems in a Champions League final? I think um, you're asking me to project into both the, the kind of personality of Klopp and his players and the football analytics side, which is just a big jump from here in Barcelona in my kitchen. <laughs> but um, to be honest with you, one thing I've learned in my visits to the training ground there, to the various interviews I've done one-on-one with Liverpool players and staff, which is both Klopp, uh, Klopp and Pep Linders, is that for them it's about it's about winning um, pretty remorselessly, pretty ruthlessly, in my opinion, it's quite clear, without denigrating Real Madrid, the side that Liverpool would most enjoy facing and would have a higher likelihood of beating is, is, is Real Madrid rather than City. It's been clear over several battles now um, that City have some of the kryptonite Liverpool don't like. They, they never lie down. And the degree to which analytically they know each other intimately, says that if Liverpool play in a in a putative final, which is the hypothesis you've thrown up against Real Madrid, they've got one thing which in sports psychology terms is good. This is a revenge factor. And, and again, having interviewed both Trent Alexander and Andy Robertson on this subject of the Real Madrid game, revenge would be a very, very high um, extra motivation if in, in your hypothetical final in Paris between Real Madrid and Liverpool. Revenge for Kiev is what I'm talking about. Um, beyond that, uh, there we are in a phase, you both know it in, in La Liga, whereby as, as high quality technically, as high quality tactically as it is, and beautifully still entertaining for my taste, there is a difference between a really elite English side on top Premier League side on on superpower form and and the best in La Liga in terms of just power play, tempest play. Now, not English. English sides can't always manage that against Real Madrid. The first leg against Chelsea was small proof of that. The gap's narrowed over the last year, whereas Aleti and Real Madrid last year were, were, were very pale um, opponents for Chelsea, for example. The gap's changed a little bit. Madrid are much closer. But I think that Liverpool would be absolutely clear that um, in a final against Real Madrid, they'd be much freer to play 
just exactly with no nuances, no extra details, exactly to the template of how they like to play best at really high speed with and without the ball. And they would feel that they could probably put Real Madrid to the sword. And with Real Madrid this season in the Champions League, it's all been about their opponents finishing. Mm-hmm. So in Paris, it, had they lost three or four nil, really genuinely nobody could have complained. Had they lost, had they been three nil down before uh, Real Madrid scored at home to Paris Saint-Germain, particularly Mbappe chances, nobody could have compl- complained. By the time that Mondi makes a, a, a mistake for Chelsea uh, um, at, um, at 2-1, I think it is, Chelsea are on the rise again. Real Madrid are, are conceding chances. Courtois is keeping them in it. Ultimately, 3-1 is really beautiful. In the burn-up, oh, Chelsea could have been 5 or 6 nil up by the time Rodrigo scores. And I don't need to explain to either of you or Emery who watched um, the game where Pep's City looked like you know five one winners <laughs> came out four three that pattern can't you know continue it, the, the history of sport not just football tells us that it's really interesting to write about ropadol fight back stories the remontada but if you keep doing that fortnight in fortnight out eventually the knockout blow comes so if Roma did perform as they did away to city at home then I think they're going out. Have they got the capacity to beat City and go through? Without question, they definitely do. But I think it needs a, a an, an absolute sea change in their idea of how to press, how to defend, and and how to cope with with City's movement, which was Roman's undoing on Tuesday night. Your Liverpool fans should be desperate that Real win this game because they're miles better than Real converted like Liverpool will be slight outsiders against Man City I can't for the life of me see how Liverpool the way they've been Liverpool are an absolute winning machine and they will face better teams than Real Madrid and win um, I, I couldn't see them yeah but they, let's be finished now. <clears throat> fair now in the final there won't be three teams so whether they can be better teams than Real Madrid or not in a two-team final is irrelevant and and the fact is although I've made a case about which and answer Owen's question about which side of clock could choose in this hypothetical dream world where you can choose your final opponents it doesn't mean that Real Madrid are a push-hopers that, that's just that's just that they're miles Madrid, better than them. They're miles better than Real Madrid. I mean, as you say, Graham, as well. Like the, the, no, the chances no, they've coughed up against Chelsea. No. You, I think you're wrong about that. I think that, um, for example, when they went into the Champions League in Madrid, Liverpool ostensibly should have been miles better than Tottenham. And it was a stuffy game where nerves took over, tiredness took over. And what's more, the fact, what I'm arguing is different to you in that, and, and I swear that my analysis, at least of Real Madrid, is, is, is spot on. The fact is, Real Madrid are ex- an extraordinary bunch of characters with world-class talents who don't particularly like the style that Liverpool play at their best. Mm. Now, looking for a quadruple after a long season and at the moment being on absolute top power form against Villarreal, but not, not last weekend, for example, um, and, and projecting forward to a 28th May final in Paris. That's a really different um, perspective. And if you if, if you were trying to sell in this hypothesis to, to, to Klopp and his staff and his players in the two, three days before a Paris final against Roman, don't worry, you're miles better than them. You know, they'd smack you in the face. Yeah, thankfully I'm not the Liverpool manager, but uh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, the, the job coming up in a year or two. <laughs> yeah, there we go. What what is it uh, uh, about these Champions League semi finals, Graham, that have given us some unbelievable 
like historically good games over the last five, six years. Like, and I'm talking about choosing it, obviously, rather than last night. Like, for me, and this yeah. maybe just come from not having watched enough of Ancelotti's Real Madrid, but I, I was a little bit surprised that Pep versus Ancelotti threw up an all time classic on Tuesday. Um, I understand what you mean, except it's literally almost throughout the decades that we've been alive and when we're working in this business, you could throw Madrid in a knockout tie and you'd be almost guaranteed that whether they went through or not, it, it, it would be it would be knockabout. It, yeah. There would be ultra drama. They they don't live to to be a Rolls Royce team. They, they live to win, come hell or high water, no matter how it happens. Uh, and sometimes when they don't win, it's ultra you know, spectacular. And what is it about these semifinals? Uh, the one thing I'm absolutely sure about is that during my working lifetime, the Champions League has homogenized football in terms of every single player of any worth whatsoever. By the time he, because we're talking about the men's game at the moment, is, is 21 or 22, treats flying to um, Berlin or flying to Lisbon for a Champions League match, the, the same as they would treat um, being on a bus for 45 minutes to go to a away game in the Premier League in your, in your case in UK and Ireland or here in La Liga, travels the same, food's the same, you're, you're shepherded around by, you know, ultra ultra clever people from your club who cost at you. The pitch qualities are all the same. Everything is filmed. The referee qualities in the Champions League, the disparity between one and the other and his interpretation or a good night and a bad night is much smaller than you might find in a domestic league. It's it's as easy now in the Champions League in terms of everything apart from how good your opponent is to play the same away as you play at home. And that's been inculcated into coaches and, and physical preparators and, and players now since, you know, the early 90s. And as such, what happens is we, we get the complete reverse of what the European Cup was uh, before and and. For my money, it's it's a terrible idea to get rid of away goals. We haven't seen the damage yet. Some might say Atleti at City, some might say Villarreal last night, but I promise you it wasn't their tactic to play like that. I think the away goals rule is a terrible idea to get rid of it. But you know, over the, the Champions League years, what we've seen is, is a re-education of everybody's mind in football that you play away to win. And that gives you your four threes and your three nil, four nils. It's just for my money, um, despite all the hullabaloo about Super Leagues and about Seferin talking about completely rejecting the way that the semi-finals and final are played, where they're played, you know, what time scale. For my money, the Champions League, including the World Cup, has been the greatest football competition ever invented. So why are they talking about getting rid of the two-legged semi-finals? Well, because the, the villagers have got pitchforks and, and torches and, and they're storming the Baron's Castle, I think. Um... UEFA are obviously, but they don't feel threatened. Um, they, they do feel aware that the, the Super League caught them completely by surprise. I promise you that. They, they were caught completely by surprise. And that has given them time to go back and lick their wounds and think, well, what do we do in order to, if I use the phrase buy off, it sounds a little pejorative, but in order to give the leading clubs, who are the participants? So they're, uh, what's the modern term, lads? Are they stakeholders? <laughs> should, we fly, should we fly out the flagpole and say, oh, yeah, that can act shit? The bottom line is that they're looking to rejig because they've been forced to. In my opinion, it's it's unnecessary. Minor modifications in, in a tournament, trying with, like, with the champion's path to make sure that clubs of quality from leagues with lower coefficients get 
a shot at group football because in group football with six matches, if you're good enough, you should go through. Yes, I'd like to see representation from smaller countries with lower budgets in their clubs and, and lower coefficients. That's that's an amendment that Champions League could be making. The idea about making, which has been pushed at the moment, a sort of final four, semi-finals played on you know, one day rather than two legs, played in a host city with it. it it's nicking from North America. There's the long and short. It, it's happening because big clubs are saying we, we want more control, we want more money, we want less jeopardy and the way that UEFA think they, they can respond is, is via reject, which was already in their minds for the, I think, 24-25 season. Now this idea, they, they clearly are throwing up to see what the public, see what the media, see what the industry will say about it, this this final four in one city and, and no semi-finals home and away as we know it. For my taste, it's a it's unnecessary change. Just five years hence when we're talking, six years hence when we're talking about it, we may all be totally in love with it. It may feel like, you know, a basketball final or an NFL final. I, I don't know, but it's change that we don't need. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Graham Hunter, great stuff. Thanks a million. See you, guys. Cheers, Graham Hunter there on the line from Spain. This is just a, a bad idea, right? The like, like the, For me, the semi-finals have been, and the quarter-finals to, to a lesser extent, have just been the, the best part of the, mm. the domestic, sorry, the club uh, football calendar over yeah. the last few years. It's a complete misnomer as well, like because it's not a Champions League when you have teams who finish fourth and teams who finish third. I mean, and... I, 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 nobody would probably agree with me with the way it is now but like in the old days where the European Cup and champions played against each other there was a beautiful kind of tradition to that and the, the winners played the winners of different countries and the winner from Ireland might end up drawing Liverpool um, back in the day and now it's obviously much it's bloated and as Graham says Super League um, you know, compelled them to look at where they're going but well if you didn't if you had just champions only then you wouldn't have one of Manchester City or Liverpool wouldn't be in the semi-finals of they wouldn't they shouldn't be in it because it's not that's not a Champions League Champions League is the champions like you, you didn't fit, you, you're, you're not champion of anything by finishing fourth I know but it used to be called the European Cup yeah like, but it's not it shouldn't be called a Champions League for example but like so I if we had a, a better second tier competition than the Europa League or whatever that'd be fine but anyway that's not going to change so that's that's by the by but like footballers already have far too many games and I don't think the powers that be give a crap about that I don't think they give a damn about um, you know the, the the challenges that footballers have in terms of keeping up their fitness, keeping up um, you know their form and all that. I don't think they care about that. But why would you tinker with this, as they say, to the extent of these whole cities nonsense and all that? Like um, I despair. And and you know maybe we'll we don't care about people going to games anymore. We want people watching on TV and streaming and so on and more and more money. But I don't know. I mean, in fairness, the two-legged semi-finals are are, are great entertainment. We were chatting earlier on, if you're just joining us, about Johnny Ward's hatred for social media. He just wants to get rid of Instagram, wants to get rid of Twitter. Hates people with their hates people out with their phones, with their phones out at matches. Luke Keeney has been in touch to say, Johnny, some man's talk about taking photos on Instagram, posting about five euro tomatoes and Harold's Cross. It's five twenty five actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I'm I'm a complete and utter hypocrite on this. Like I'm a complete <laughs> and utter hypocrite on everything. I was even off Instagram and went back on it, and I'm just as much of a dose as I was beforehand. But phones completely take over your life. If you've in any way an addictive personality, which I do, your phones will take over your life. And um, but I don't. The one way I'm not hypocritical, and I hope you're the same. If you're a beloved carrier plane, I do not take my phone out to take photos of 
the opposition player celebrating a goal against me and I never will no, I'm too bitter shoot to, me if I'm I do too bitter to do that maybe maybe they're just more mature people than we are and they're like we can appreciate the, the opponents whereas maybe we're too tribal yeah, well we're tribal but we also want to watch the game and yeah. you know and it's a, not, it's a massive challenge as well for people watching the average fella or girl who watches a sporting event at home now probably spends possibly 10% of the 90 minutes on his or her phone yeah that's not good I mean that's just and it's totally totally addictive yeah no it is it is we all do it 5 euro tomatoes 525 tomatoes is a disgrace though so uh, you were right to uh, it was one of those situations where does your pride because you, you, you don't really take much notice of the per kilogram price that's written down on so you're like the tomatoes are weighed and you're and then it's like 525 and I was like I, I can't like not pay for this now can I because you know I'm purportedly middle class so I'm going to say oh that's fine while saying to myself I'm, I'm never going here again purportedly middle class Johnny Ward I like it's got a ring to it uh, up next we have Tommy Welch on this weekend purportedly middle class Tommy absolutely yeah. um, well we'll get a second that uh, but first uh, Jerry Thornley joined Joe on last night's Wednesday Night Rugby to uh, debate whether Irish fans are too parochial and uh, this is how they got on in that debate <laughs> that parochial point is a very interesting one. I think that extends to rugby uh, generally amongst yeah. uh, the, the the majority of quote unquote rugby viewers. So, for instance, like a Champions League evening, if PSG are playing Real Madrid, everybody in this country is sitting down to watch it. Yep. Whereas I think those same viewers in rugby who will be very inclined to watch Leinster against Leicester in the quarterfinal or Munster against Toulouse. I'd say the vast majority of them will just uh, check the Racing sale result on Sunday evening as opposed to sit down and watch it. There is that parochial aspect uh, to the majority, I think, of rugby watchers. And I'd say even more so in the new expanded URC than even in the Heineken Champions Cup. I would say there would be quite an interest in Racing, particularly with Mikey Prendes being there and certainly in the past when Simon Zebo was there. And, you know, I would say... That's a very parochial reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do think because, you know, the Irish province have come across Racing yeah. quite a bit yeah, over yeah. the years as well. Um, whereas we haven't come across the South African franchise nearly as much. And let's be honest, the Pro 12 stroke Pro 14 had become a little bit boring in the sense that it wasn't the most exciting tournament in the world. Mm. And we didn't pay that. I mean, whatever, whatever about watching a French derby in the Heineken Champions Cup latter stages, um, what chance Irish viewers watching a Welsh derby or a Scottish derby or an Italian derby, yeah. or for that matter now, a South African derby uh, in the URC. And I do think even though it's only on pay-per-view that you know, BT Sport and before them Sky did present the whole tournament as a package very well in its highlights package and so forth. And I just think some of the coverage, and I include myself and in this, like I, up until a couple of weeks ago, Joe, I wasn't even putting in the other fixtures. When we put, whenever I was asked to do the weekend fixture list, I just put in the four Irish provinces that were playing in the URC. So I've actually, you know, in the last few weeks, I've started to, wait a second, really start putting in all the other fixtures as well. I, I, At least this is now getting quite relevant sure. in terms of the makeup of the final top eight. I doubt there was a single complaint, was there? No, no, there wasn't. Yeah. Although there have been complaints about the table not always being accurate. So there you go. Jerry Thornley in conversation with Joe on last night's show. You can get the full piece back on our YouTube channel or on the OTB Sports app where you can get all of our podcasts. We are turning our attention at 8.36 this morning to the weekend's hurling. Tommy Welsh is back with us. Tommy, how are you getting on? Yeah, good morning, on. Let's start with uh, what I presume is the big one in your eyes. Uh, Galway versus Kilkenny Sunday, 2 o'clock. Henry versus Cody. I presume this relationship was, was as warm as uh, Brian Cody relationship can be during the playing days? 
Uh, absolutely. Um, like Henry was kind of his go-to man, really. He could trust him. Henry was probably a role model to everybody. He was able to get on with the young lads, the older guys, and he had that professionalism. Like, he, you know, he wouldn't be out in the town. You wouldn't have to worry about him off the field. Like, he would be, his dive would be 100%. His gym would be 100%. So he totally trusted him. You know, he was his main man. And, and you know, like, I suppose you could compare it to maybe Jimmy McGuinness and Michael Murphy, looking mm-hmm. at it from the outside, I'd say. know nothing about that relationship. But it looked like the two two boys up north, they, they really were at one with their thoughts on the game and that. And it was the same with Brian and Henry. And um, I suppose he was his go-to man in the field. And the fact that since probably 19 years of age, from 1999, when he came in on the panel, he um, backed it up with his performances. So, yeah, no, he was definitely his lieutenant on the field, you know. Uh, Dion Fanning had a great line once about Roy Keane as a manager, and he said, um, it's, it is said that when Roy Keane is in times of trouble as a manager, he thinks, what would Brian Clough do? The problem with Clough was that that usually involved having a drink, mm-hmm. right? So in, in terms of, um, and I, I don't know, does he think, like, if I were a manager, will I be like Fergie? But Tommy, will... In times of like um, deep stress, and in times of you know the, the, which which management will entail, will he be? Will he look into what Cody was, or will he draw from Cody in terms of what he's going to be as a manager? Yeah, um, I think you, you always learn from the best, Johnny. So you, Henry's a very intelligent man. He does very well professionally. He does very well in all aspects of his life. So he will take parts of, I'd say, Brian Cody that he can. Uh, bring with his personality because you have to stamp your own personality on it. Otherwise, it just won't last long, Johnny. Mm. Um, you know, people will see through you. You can copy someone else all you want, but that'll only work for a couple of months, a year, I'd say, at max. But after that, like, it's your own personality will always shine through at times of need. So I think Henry, like, Henry in his own right has won a lot, you know, in the management. He's won two club All-Irelands, two county finals when Balliol hadn't been going so well. Mm. So this guy has taught on his feet. He has went through tricky situations, matches where they were down by a couple of points, come back with last-minute goals, matches where they were favourites, a county semi-final against Castle Comer a couple of years ago. It looks like in Henry's first year that they were gone. They are after having a bad league campaign, which in Kilkenny, it's Championship League. It's like, we'll say, the current format in the Inter-County Series it all affects your, your championship standings and they didn't go well they ended up in the bottom there's, there's two groups of six Johnny in the Kenny Club Championship they were in the bottom two which means that if you lose you're in relegation so no one no one has ever you know come out of that like it's the top four are seeded in, in, in each group sorry the top two in each group if you're in the bottom four you're into a championship first round so no one as far as I can remember no one coming out of the first round ever won the county final it was always one of the top seeded teams. And in Henry's first year, that a poor campaign ended up in that first round and went on and won the county final. So this guy has been in sticky situations. He can rely on his own kind of experiences nearly at this stage and add in um, Brian Cody's. Like I'd say, the biggest thing he probably took from it would be when Henry finished Hub Hurling, he went straight into club management. So he would still have been very friendly with the likes of TJ, Colin, the Mullinses, uh, you know, and all the, the the club players. So, like, Brian Cody once say, from October to January, you could have the crack with Brian. It'd be great fun and, you know, chats and that, like, you know, friendship kind of things. But once January came, once you came back from the team holiday, it was professional. So when you went in, like, he was there to do his job and you were there, you know, to do your job. And I'd say Henry probably learned that maybe, uh, you know, took a, a little bit of that off Brian so that he knows, like, 
when he was over Ballyhay, like he had nephews on the team. Um, he had best friends. He did, but he probably had to take a step back. Mm. Maybe not go down to social occasions. Not that he was big into him anyway, but you know, a little bit of a standoff just because on the big day, he'd have to make big, big decisions, you know, and like them guys, the own Cody's and these guys, like they weren't automatic starters at the time. So, you know, you had that whole side of things as well. So I'd say the one aspect he would have took off Brian would be, would be standards and, you know, to realise that you're not a player anymore, that you're their manager and you'll have to make tough decisions. It does feel that Kilkenny are coming into this weekend under the radar, probably just because of the fixture list. There's been higher profile games that have happened and Kilkenny haven't been part of them just yet. Like it's too complicated to read into, say, how Leash performed against Dublin versus how they performed against Kilkenny. And Kilkenny will never judge themselves against uh, by how they get on against Leash. But still, the, the score lines that, that Leash and the, the scores that they shipped in the space of one week is pretty striking and, and says to me that, that Kilkenny are pretty ruthless already earlier on this year and are kind of looking at, you know, not that anybody wants a number two tag, but are kind of looking at Waterford and seeing them as a level just below Limerick and saying, I think we deserve to be there. Yeah, um, you're right from all of that, uh, Owen, you're you're 100% right. Where are they? We don't really know yet, but there's great signs. Um, Like the last day I was in at the Kenny versus Leash match, you know, Adrian Mullen was back to his, his, his absolute best. He was out around the middle. And I think, you know, I scored six points. Um, if you look at Limerick, we'll say, who are the standard bearers at the moment, like how many scores are the scored from out the field on? Like Hegarty always pops up with a good few points. Keane Lynch, Tom Morrissey, go back the field. And midfielders, the last, although Dyer Donovan scored a nice bit the last day and that got him out of trouble, it usually comes from their half-back line. Hannon, Julie ships up one or two. Kyle Hayes, maybe a goal and a couple of points. And especially Dirma Burns. So I think to compete with, with you know, there's so many sharp puck outs and getting it out to that middle third, a lot of talk and a lot of stats around that at the moment. So if it's out there a lot, you have to have scores out there. So I think Kilkenny, like, you know, TJ's back. I know he's full forward um, last last Sunday against, against Leash. But, like, he'll probably be out the field a bit more. So I'd say Kilkenny going back traditionally, if you got the ball in the half back in the field, give it into the forwards, don't shoot, let the forwards do their job, trust them. Now we have to think a little bit different, the ball is a bit lighter, the average score in, in a match isn't 14, 15 points anymore, it's nearly 25 to 30 points, so you have to be scoring them out the field now on, so I think, you know, James Maher is back in the field, in midfield the last day, he played very, very well, Connor Brown will be, you know, son of Angela Downey, star, absolutely one of the greatest Camogie players of all time, she, he's back in the half, back in the full fitness, so Kilkenny, they have their strongest team, I think, coming back onto the team now with those guys like Sakeen Kenny, David Blanchfield. They could be on the team, I don't know. But the last they will say they weren't weren't the great subs to come in if they're if they're not picked. Yeah. So they're picking it. There's a, a strong panel coming there now. Can I can I ask sorry on that? Can I um yeah. I spoke to Liam Cheedy about this when we went we visited William McCreary um and a racing thing. Liam Cheedy's kind of interview is is um and I know it's been spoken about, but for, for me, Tommy, the, the the weight of the slitter is a big issue. And I I was a friend of mine who's big into Gaelic football. I was I brought this up in the WhatsApp group the other day, and he said something has to be done. It's not even enjoyable to watch anymore, despite all the talking about it. For me, there there are far too many points scored in a hurling game now, that where it's like this shouldn't be this easy. I mean, when it's a when it's habitual now, the teams are scoring 30, 35 points. For me, there's something not quite right there. Yeah, um, I'd agree, Johnny, with the. Excitement of a game doesn't ha- you don't have to have 30 points, mm. you know. Um, like there was often games going back through many years, even at the moment where 
the ball might only go from the half back line to the other half back line. And it might be the score might be two ten to one ten or two nine to, to one eight. But it could be an absolute enthralling match, a battle, you know, in the trenches. So we're probably not seeing battles in the trenches as much. The first time I've seen it in many years was probably down the Gaelic grounds. Um why? I don't know. I suppose the Limerick crowd had a lot to uh, a big part to play in that. They were so excited. They were so up for it. Um, but I would agree with you. Like, well, what do you do about it? I don't know. Like, how do you manage what slitter is, is brought in? Because there's probably 20, 25 slitters being brought in different bags on, on a day. Very hard to, another talking about microchipping them, but on, uh, practically on game day, how do you test whether the ball is standard or not? It's difficult. Mm-hmm. And this is why Johnny... Another point on from that is very hard to play that short game. You know, the passing the ball 30 yards looks very easy, mm. but it's so difficult because you take golf, right? Like the ball, to me, the guy that doesn't play golf a whole lot, I hear him talking about the ball in golf as well. Like every golf ball, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a golf ball, put it that way. And say when Rory McIlroy or any of these guys change their clubs, it seems to be a big thing. And that takes them a while to get back into the swing of things. But like you look at a hurler, he breaks his hurl, it's made of ash, Mawson. He breaks his hurl, the next hurl he gets will not be the same. Mm. Because every every ash tree is different, some are heavier, some are lighter. The way you make it, the way you pawn the hoop, um, the way you pawn your grip, like the hurl will never be the same. Add in the hurling ball will never be the same. You could get a ball in a train session that it could go a million miles an hour. It could ping, you could touch it and it could go 60 yards. The next ball you could get, you could have to give it your absolute living best to drive it 50 yards. So it's it is more difficult, but I don't think there's any way of really stamping it out, Johnny. Because like say in a soccer match, you know there's only so many footballs there. It's probably easy enough to see it, but in a hurling match, you know you're using twenty twenty five balls. You, you you're a football man only. Is it not a little bit tainted now watching these great games? Thinking like it shouldn't be like Limerick should not be scoring thirty points against decent opposition. Here. No, for me for me, uh, and I'm not sure if Tommy agree with this. For me, it's just the dead balls from range is the only thing mm. that I would have had a cram at. But I I would have raised this at the start of last year, and I think last year's championship was so good that I kind of was like well that was just a league problem and I, f- I find sometimes and it goes with both codes that sometimes the league fair can just be poor and we can get carried away with it and say you know the, the sport is broken for me it's just the dead balls I, I still think that you know scoring from range from open play is 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 amazing and I think that that comes with a really interesting tactical response from teams do you push out push up on teams to ensure that somebody isn't scoring from 70 to, to 90 yards and, and I think that that's an intriguing one it's just the dead balls from from 100 yards maybe which which um which kind of don't sit overly well with me but I don't know go ahead Tommy actually on that one yeah I think um just Johnny you know we all agree I agree with you and I say every hurling guy does agree with you um it's just the game changes and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You'd hope it comes back around. But I'd say the reason, which I've often thought about, the, why is the game not as probably as exciting if there's more scores, right? You know when you got the ball, Johnny, years ago, full back? Say, Brian Lohan's era. Um, mm. The Rock from Cork. When the, Jackie Terrell. When they got the ball, right, they drove it 100 yards down the field. That brought the crowd to his feet. Do you think 80,000 people in Crow Park when that happens? Or when Rock came out that day against Limerick. Lift them more than a score, like. Yeah, and the whole crowd just gets into the game, you see, Johnny. And it's absolutely exciting. But add to that then, that long ball, where does it go? It goes down into a 50-50. Mm. So if that's, we'll say, um, you know, Gary Kirby versus Liam Donner, whether that's, we'll say, Jodine versus Brian Lone, it's a 50-50 ball. Say Jodine goes up and catches that over Brian Lone. Sure, the crowd are going wild again. Suddenly then, if he catches the ball, he's gone around his man. There's a goal chance. 
So the crowd are constantly, with each passage of play, are going miles towards. Now, if you if I give a tippy tappy pass out to, we'll say, Dearman Burns, right? That's not going to bring a cheer. That's not going to bring the crowd to his feet. He, you know, gives a tippy tappy pass down to Garrod Hegarty, who is in space. That's not going to bring a cheer. And then Garrod Hegarty goes into space, puts it over the bar. Yeah, he get the cheer for the for the score, but not the kind of the rousing, you know, um, fierce, passionate uh, crowd support. You know, yeah. I think that's that's yeah. that's what has changed probably over the years. I just want to get back to the to the weekend's hurling Cork against Clare Sunday two o'clock. You were watching Clare for us uh, last week, and I guess the week beforehand, there's plenty of questions asked, some tough questions asked of uh, the Cork defence. This is a huge game, Tommy. Like, I mean, the winner of this one is quite possibly going to get that third spot in the, the Munster hurling championship, and the loser may well be going home. But that Clare attack last week, combined with the questions asked of that Cork defence, how big a factor is that going to be in in how you're looking at this one? Yeah, after being added, there was it was there was huge wide open spaces from we'll say the forty five in on both Tipperary and Clare playing with two men inside, no sweepers or anything. I think if the game uh, plans out like like last week, it was too Cork down to the the one thing Cork just have to start out with the moment on is Cork were going brilliantly. It's just they they shipped a couple of goals in the league final, then they had a bad beating by Limerick. But listen, Limerick are beating everybody. You know, Watford seemed to be the only one in the last while to be able to put up to them. They're fresh, they're hungry, Limerick. After coming back from a six-week break, so I wouldn't read too much into that Cork Limerick game. The big thing for Cork is is just to get back, like say, um, like like I remember say 2012 when we played um, Dublin, played them in, in the Leinster semi-final, and we were up for that. There was rumours that Dublin were going over turners in in Port Leash. And we were just psyched for the game. We blew Dublin out, out of water. We turned up, I think the Leinster final was two weeks later, and we were flat. We put so much into that match. Galway beat us and beat us convincingly in that Leinster final. And we kind of trudged our way through the season then until the semi-final. And sometimes you just... And we we had a, a weekend away in Carton House after we beat Limerick in the quarter-final. And remember Racker Cody was going round just... But you know he's the kit man at Kenny, a fabulous man, and he's like um, remember Italian ninety, uh, the physio Mick Mick um, Burn, yeah, yeah Mick Burn. He that kind of a guy, you know, going around great friends with everyone, but great crack, and had the respect of everyone as well. But he was going around Karen House that time. The spirit is back. We're back, lads. We're back, and before we knew it, he was that kind of a character. We were all buzzing again, and that wasn't the only thing, but it was a major part. But I think for Cork, that's what they need going into Sunday. I know tactically people thought what would have to change tactically. Defend a bit better as regards defend not as individuals but a group. But I think the first thing they need to start out is just get back smiling, get back enjoying themselves, get their confidence back and don't take it so seriously. Getting a lot of criticism at the moment. You know, they're in for a while and by all accounts there last weekend. So listen, hopefully that will, you know, get their mojo back. Cork just need to get their mojo back first and let them off and let them, you know, they'll be well able to be clear. They should have no fear of clear. That's a 50-50 game if ever I saw one. Um, but I think the wide open spaces, if Clare allowed the wide open space that they allowed last weekend, I think it would sue Cork. Are you surprised Kilkenny are favourites? To beat Galway? Mm. I didn't realise they were. Um, mm. And I'm not surprised. Um, you know, see, Galway, if you look at the Galway team, Johnny, like, they have, you know, Joe Canning is gone, Niall Burke is gone. Like big strong men, I'm not so sure what the story is with Conor Whelan, but they've huge physicality gone out of their attack, and like they've replaced them with smaller guys, the the Evan Nyland, the Brian Concannons. 
So the, the, the dynamic of their team has changed. If you, the last time I was up in Salt Hill, Kilkenny played Galway 2018. It was the year after Galway won the All-Ireland. And they were just, a, they were like Galway at, at the moment, or they were like Limerick at the moment. They are just, Kilkenny gave them everything. Next minute, Galway switched it on and beat Kilkenny out the gate in the last couple of minutes. That's the type of team they were. They were huge men that could win the ball anyway. Like, we're talking about the short game, the long game at the moment. Limerick stats, if you bring up stats anyway, they seem to be winning all the types of games. So it's not all to do with game plans. It's a major part of it, but it's not all to do with the great teams will play any way you want. So it's Galway back then, could play it any way you want. Fast forward to now, I think Kilkenny, I think to have the great balance between the young lads and the older guys, the TJ Reeds and we'll say the Adrian Mullins and the King Kennys. Towards Galway, I think, are they're still trying to find out these new guys, you know, what are they going to be like in championship? They had a six-point lead, Johnny and Wexford Park. Probably should have, you know, closed that one out and didn't. So I'd say that's why Kilkenny are favourites. Plus, we all remember the last few results, if we're being probably truthful about it. The last few results for Kenny was against Leash versus and Westmead. They won both and convinced me. So I think that's what's like. If we looked at this match, Johnny, after Kenny played Cork in the in the league semi final, I don't think Kenny be favourites. Uh, we had Taggy Fogarty on the show with us earlier this week, Tommy, and uh, he put uh, your team into a time machine to take on this current Limerick team. And we were going through matchups. He put you on Garrod Hegarty. So how would you uh, how would you go about marking Garrod Hegarty? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was listening to that and I was slagging Taggy the other day. He started, <laughs> up, he started off putting Eddie Brennan on Garrod Hegarty. <laughs> 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 you know, I bought into the watch up there and JJ came back and he said, go back, Taggy, keep John Kiley thinking. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he, I don't mind me, had Eddie Brennan on Garrod Hegarty. He thought about putting Sheffield on first. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, maybe Taggy is a tactical uh, mastermind. So... You know, I suppose to put Kyle Hayes back in the half-back line, why not put back someone like that on Garrod Hegarty? But listen, it would have been a fascinating battle. Um, you know, Kilkenny versus Limerick. Like, we were a huge team, very skillful. Limerick are a huge team, a very skillful, you know. Um, but I, I think that, that you brought up a good conversation, I think it was, regards... That it's a lot of... No, listen, Limerick are a brilliant team, and they will go down no matter what happens from now on. But I'd say what will enhance their reputation... If some team does, like, we had that great Tipperary team of Shamie Callan, Polly Maher, Owen Kelly, Lara Corbett. Like, they were winning Munster finals, scoring six and seven goals. They were an unbelievable team. And um, we played the great Cork team. You know, they went for three in a row, like some of the all-time greats, Sean Oak, Don Logue, The Rock, Joe Dean, Ben O'Connor, like, just an unbelievable team of their year as well. We had the great Galway team of Joe Canning. Could have won a couple of more All-Irelands, like, that time. That team, that was a brilliant team. We had a great Waterford team of Ken McGrath, Dan Shannon, Milan. So, like, we came up against sensational teams and um, over a long period of time, like from 1999 when Cork B, you know, say Henry would have been on that team up as far as 2000 and was it 15 was the last All-Ireland. So, um, we were lucky, probably different players came along at different times as well. But this Limerick team is sensational and it would have been um, an unbelievable battle between us. But I'd say... What would enhance, and I'd say they'd love it as well, is if another great team does come along here yeah. now and take them on, maybe beat them in an All-Ireland or a semi-final, then Limerick come back and beat them again. Wouldn't that be brilliant? And the likes of this Cork and Watford and maybe this Kilkenny team, you know, might be able to um, 
do something about it I don't know Yeah the Kilkenny one is obviously the, the, the fascinating element of all of this it feels like a long time ago when, when Kilkenny did beat them but Yeah well, well take it but even if you if you took the teams that were out were named in some of them teams like you had Jackie Tyrrell as he said on Galan I nearly put J- Jackie out in Hegarty Imagine the two of them yeah. guys. I'd, say, I'd, I'd have a chat with the referee. I'd say, John Kyle and Cody, go up to the referee now before the game and say, right, ref, if the ball goes in between two of them, leave your whistle in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Let the two of them add, whichever events up out in the stand. <laughs> so, Likeness you know, of the slitter doesn't matter there. No, like say Shefflin. Um, trying to think now of the, the, the Limerick team. You know, push Shefflin over and Dear McBurns. Dear McBurns scoring five points from play, four points from play and a couple of frees. You know, let him follow Shefflin around the field. Um, you know, Eddie Brennan in corner back on Sean Finn. You know, Taggy even on Sean Finn. You know, like to be unbelievable. Gorta, you know, huge man, Gorta. Put him in there full, who's full back for him at the moment. It was Dan Morrissey or Mike, Mike Casey. You know, big man, small man. Uh, Mike Casey, huge muscles. Um, you know, strong on the ground. Gorta just, you know, one of our best ball winners of all time just made so many careers uh, Gorta did by passing off the ball and creating chances that would have been say, say, J- JJ who would you put JJ put JJ on Galan you know to be ah, to be, to be be even thinking of it there now like Nicky Quaid versus you know David Hurley P. Ryan James McGarry Owen Murphy whichever them boys like I think them one-on-one matchups uh, would have been ah, would have been sensational I'd say Noel Hickey who would we put Hickey on I think we'll tell <laughs> We'll tell him to leave the referees leave the, ref, the whistle in the pocket for that, that one as well. Maybe, <laughs> maybe put him on um, put him on Flanagan. You know, Flanagan's a tough man. Hickey's a tough man. So I think the battles would have been sensational. Put Chad Fitzpatrick on Willow Donahue. You know, big man, small man again, like Chad genius. Like he's one of the best midfielders they ever played. It doesn't you know? I played with him in school in St Kieran's College. He had a sidestep when he came in and thirteen years of age into Kieran's. No one could mark. He was on. He was a small guy. He came into our Kieran senior panel in fourth fourth year. An absolute genius, as tough as nails. Could win the ball anyway, high ball, low ball. Won failures, won minor all Ireland's. He won everything. You know, he finished up a bit early, but his career was. Imagine him on Willow Dunhu. Like Willow Dunhu is an angry midfielder. Imagine how angry he won after Travis. So I listen. No, on it be. It will be a sensational yeah. match. There's no point in saying saying other. Mick Finley, who even Mick Finley may be on Willow Thunder. <laughs> we go talk about this. Oh, it's a, it's a, it sounds like I haven't thought about it at all. Your Tommy. record will be back playing soon. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just a, a couple of very quick ones before we let you go. Uh, Patrick Collins been in touch. If Tommy was playing, who would he want as manager, Cody or Henry? <laughs> <laughs> the Emperor or the King? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, listen, mate, I'm two of them. Joint managers. Joint managers. I'm not sure that'll work either. They should not be at this stage. They should not be at this stage. They're not going to pick between the two of them. And then finally, you one. Know, Cody did Sorry. Pick. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 do you want to finish your point there? This is the this is the good stuff. No. No. No, no, that's good. That's good. Cody did something, something, something. <laughs> a, a caption here, like, you know, what did Cody do? <laughs> <laughs> I said he didn't, he never dropped me on. He didn't pick me in the first year yeah. and dropped me in the last year. So. I will loyal to you know. <laughs> Mostly we'll, ask Henry, we'll ask Henry how would he pick the team first <laughs> and then just one quick shout out before we go Tommy yeah shout out so I suppose when I started this last week and it's something I had in my head for a long time is, and there's no team to this it could be anyone it could be any person it could be a player a manager selector it could be a commentator a kit man it could be anything but the man I chose this week is a, an absolute legend from, from Watford, Michael Ryan. 
um, is, is in probably my thoughts the last couple of months since I saw the article that he retired as manager or coach, selector. I'm not sure what actually he was there with Bally McCarberry. They're after winning 40 county finals in a row and he stepped away. And you think this man, he's after doing it all. Did he step away and he wants to put the feet up? No, because I think he's still coach or manager with Four My Water hurling team, which is that team in the area, and the Nair football team, which is the football senior team in that area. Four My Water got to the semi-finals last year. The Nair, great football team, traditional powerhouse in Watford. He was also a selector with the Watford under-20 team. I think they were beaten last night, but he was selected with them. So this man, he didn't just retire and walk off into the sunset. He's just so heavily involved. Well, I was just looking back at some of his stats, right? So he retired after Bally McCarberry winning 40 county finals in all. And I'd love to actually, someone might tweet it in or, or text in, like, does anyone what, have 20 or 30 county finals on that team? It'd be amazing to see. Yeah. He, but before that, Johnny, he led him to 10 uh, club All-Irelands, Bally McCarberry, mm. back in the 80s and I think it was the 90s. 14 Munster clubs. He, he's a few stints. His first stint with Bally McCarberry was 1975. 1975. Amazing stuff. Um, you know, he stepped away in 08 but came back in 18. He has five all Ireland's with the Waterford ladies football team as well. And I think he is a, I think he was manager of the, La- the Leash ladies football team as well. He coached many other teams to major titles. Uh, he was with De La Salle when they won a Munster club. John Milan, Kevin Morn, Jake Dillon, uh, that team. Um, he was with Waterford seniors. Uh, I know they could have bet us in a 2013, I went to extra time down in Turles. That was, you know, could easily went on maybe that year, won, won in All-Ireland. He went up then to Westmead, himself and Mickey Welch from Kenny went up to Westmead. Um, just, what a GA man. Like, you know, he's been involved since, what, 1975 in all Ireland football, ladies, Gaelic football, Camogie. So, listen, my big shout is uh, Michael Ryan, Watford, Bally McCarry, Four Mile Water, Denier. You name it, this man has done it. And uh, well done to Michael on a, a fantastic career and best of luck going forward. His line to Maliki Clerken in the in his interview was, I get bored very easily. The more I watch soccer and games on television, the more I went, want to get out and do something on the pitch. Yeah. It's nice. You know. I, like, I mean, uh, uh, good luck to the future shout-outs trying to match those tallies that you just put up there. Incredible stuff. Tommy Welch, always a pleasure. Enjoy the weekend's hurling. Yeah. Thanks a million, lads. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Cheers. You'll hear Tommy across the weekend, obviously, as well. A couple of massive hurling games uh, coming up on Sunday in particular. Uh, Carl Malani is with us in studio at three minutes past nine. Carl, how are you getting on? Good morning, lads. All good. How are you? Very well. Good. Where are we starting this morning? Uh, well, let's start with last night's uh, Champions League action. Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp praising his side's patience following their 2-0 win over VRL and their semi-final tie at Anfield. They went in goalless at half-time, but two quick-fire goals shortly after the break handed them a first-leg advantage in that last four-tie ahead of the second leg next week in Spain. Uh, tonight, a big game ahead for West Ham and indeed Rangers in the Europa League. West Ham playing in a European semi-final for the first time in 46 years this evening. They take on Eintracht Frankfurt in the last four of the Europa League. The first-leg tie is at the London Stadium. Rangers, meanwhile, are away to Orby Leipzig on the other side of the draw. While in the Conference League, a historic night ahead for Leicester. They play in a first-ever European semi-final with their tie against uh, Jose Mourinho's Roma. Jamie Vardy could be poised to start for Leicester there, having recovered from a knee injury. He came on against Aston Villa in the Premier League at the weekend. And on the other side of the draw in the Conference League, it is Feyenoord versus Marseille. And in the Premier League tonight, this game has kind of slightly gone under the radar given the European football this week. But Manchester United take on Chelsea 
Chelsea United hoping to boost their fading uh, top four hopes when they take on Chelsea at Old Trafford tonight and kick off for that game is at a quarter to eight. Uh, the World Championship semi-finals in snooker get underway this afternoon. First up at the Crucible is the meeting of Mark Williams, a three-time champion, and the 2019 winner, Judd Trump. That game gets underway at lunchtime. And then Ronnie O'Sullivan's clash with John Higgins uh, begins this evening. Three of the four semi-finalists from the famed class of 92. Uh, there they turned pro 30 years ago. Judd Trump was only the age of two uh, when those three players uh, turned professional. That's Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Williams and uh, John Higgins. In golf, a big uh, morning for Luke Donnelly, the Kilkenny golfer who's making his debut at the DP World Tours Catalonia Championship. He's making his debut on the tour this morning. He's one over par through six holes. Uh, elsewhere, Jonathan Caldwell is one under par through three. Cormac Sharvin and Tom McKibben out on course later on today. And Sebastian Azeli is the early leader there on four under par. On the PGA Tour, Gray McDowell represents the Irish interest at the Mexico Open, while on the LPGA Tour, the Ballas Verdes Championship taking place this week, and Leona Maguire and Stephanie Meadow, both in the field for that tournament in California. It's day three of the Punchestown Festival, two grade ones on the card today. The feature is the Champion Stairs Hurdle, classical dream bidding for back-to-back successes in that race. That goes to post at 25 past five. The uh, novice chase off at 25 to seven is the other grade one action underway uh, from 3.40. Uh, this afternoon at uh, Punchestown. In Gaelic Games, defending All-Ireland champions Cork are out of the Under-20 Hurling Championship. They suffered a 220 to 121 defeat to Tipperary in their Munster semi-final last night. On the other side of that draw, it finished Limerick 27 points, Waterford 315. In the Under-20 Football Championship tonight, the Leinster title down for decision. It's Dublin against Kildare. That game is in Port Leash and it throws in at half past seven. Action in the Munster Minor Football Championship tonight as well. Tipperary against Clare and Limerick versus Waterford and Nat Wen has the chance to secure a podium place at the European Badminton Championships in Madrid today. He faces a Danish opponent in the quarterfinals and they're due on court just after four o'clock this afternoon. Very good Carl. thanks a million for that. That's uh, Big day at the, the races today, Johnny, what are you looking out for today? Um, any, any tips up the sleeve basically? Yeah, um, I like uh, Horse in the First Race actually trained by Pat Flynn. Um, I've been struggling to have seen Punchdown this week. Uh, Walnut Beach in the First Race. It's it's a tough festival. Um, some horses just don't perform. It's the end of the season. They're a little bit over the top. Um, I generally try to avoid shorter price favourites. Um, Walnut Beach would be around 10 or 12 to 1. Um, and obviously the big race in Classical Dream, uh, who was very impressed in the race last year but is a bit quirky that's the champion stairs hurdle at 525 I'd probably be opposing, opposing him as well what about tomorrow then tomorrow have uh, I have um, it's kind of hard to remember one day from the from the rest here to the, the, the main race tomorrow is obviously Honeysuckle um, who even if I rode her would probably win tomorrow she's just very superior to everything else and we have the novice hurdle in as well Honeysuckle is, is bidding to finish her career unbeaten which I think will probably be at the end of next season which will be an amazing feat like an amazing feat and I really hope it happens for Henry de Bromhead has had a couple of high profile flops this week Mel Indo ran a stinker yesterday Bob Ollinger ran desperately badly as well um, but hopefully Honeysuckle should be fine and will you get out to any of the days of it? Um, I was supposed to go today but um, I'm kind of held up with work and stuff so at the moment I'm not 100% sure it's uh, it's great crack it has to be says, but it's said but um I'm unfortunately the older I get the less able I am to burn the candle at both ends and I have a busy shift here tomorrow so I just I just can't really do it I can't countenance it's like going to that gig the other night it was like after the gig I was like I'm on OTBAM and this the feeling of you know 
you know, such excitement and buzz just started to kind of bleed into, I have to get up at half six. A, I have to get up at half six. And B, I have to get up at half six. As in, you have to actually wake here. And, you know, we've all had mornings where we just just don't wake up. And I wouldn't want to do that to you. Um, no. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's a good Instagram opportunity. Uh, Punches down, you should go there. That's all life's about. Yeah. Like, yeah. Put it on the uh, gram. Alex Ferguson was there yesterday. He was, yeah. yeah. He was interviewed about... Um, Ten Hag, yeah. Yeah, Ten Hag, yeah. So. Well, so, uh, will you head along today or tomorrow? No. Or just focus on the GEA over the course I'm all the GEA this weekend, yeah. Where, where are you off to this weekend? Uh, got a couple of games uh, to keep an eye on. Um, might get to the Sligo game on Saturday even they're playing Roscommon. Already written off as in, like, Owen's already basically saying the Galway-Roscommon game, so that's, you might as well not just show yeah, up. Yeah, um, although Sligo have created a couple of ambushes against Roscommon in the past. Mm. Last time they played in Mark, which I think we beat them, Sligo beat them in 2015, that, and Roscommon won Division 2 that year as well. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be hearing, we'll be listening out for just a, a little lilt, an extra lilt on the, you know, the accentuation on Sligo players over the course of <laughs> yeah, the weekend. Yeah. Well, just a couple of good games this weekend. I mean, Kildare and Louth should be a good game. Um, I think Limerick and Clare play as well in the Munster Championship. Right. Um, so, like, I think the provincial championships have been like last weekend in Leinster was great as well. Yeah. Um, so, like, I mean, it's it's and the weather hopefully will will cooperate as well in terms of allowing players express themselves. Um, but it's it's just brilliant to have it and also condensed. It means there's so much to keep an eye on. Yeah, I thought uh, Tommy was very entertaining Sunday. He was on with you where you just basically said, Tommy, you're at like uh, Tip and Clare today or whatever. And you could have gone out for a couple of points. I did, actually. Yeah. I just texted him as I take it up yeah. there. I'm going to <laughs> And I was, I was in the car and it was, Tommy has literally not stopped talking for the goods of half an hour here. And I texted you. You were obviously having a couple of points. You came back and uh, you said, thanks for that, Tommy. And I was like, this man can do this on script, off script, any way he wants. And it's the best radio you'll hear. Oh, man. Like, it's just... It's just... And... The, the kids of tomorrow in Ireland won't have an accent it's great to have a fellow who sounds like exactly where he's from and the kids of tomorrow will not have accents unfortunately uh, very quickly on the snooker yeah what are we oh, what are we looking at for this weekend I think Ronnie O'Sullivan looks a cut above just in the form that he's in uh, six world titles already so he's looking for a seventh um, it, it's interesting that I mentioned there the class of 92 so the three guys that turned professional back in 92 that are still at the top of their game I mean John Higgins looks flawless as well he's had a brilliant season and uh, Mark Williams is a deceptively good snooker player. He's won three world titles. And you wouldn't really consider him, would you? Mm. When you're thinking about Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry and, and John Higgins, as I mentioned, you, a lot of the time Mark Williams kind of goes unnoticed. But he's had a brilliant career. And then Judd Trump there as well. I think Jack Lazowski will be disappointed that he lost that final frame decider last mm. night. He had, kind of hasn't made the breakthrough in terms of winning a ranking event uh, yet. And a lot of people thought that maybe this was the, this was the tournament for him. Uh, but the snooker is just a brilliant sport to watch. Uh, it's a pity that there's so much on this weekend. Yeah, that, uh, see, a lot of people disagree with you because they don't have the attention yeah. span anymore. I tend to think it, I think it's a great. Oh, sport I, I think I yeah. think it's one of those that once just give it a give it a chance. It may, exactly. may, may be in a couple of years, but you will get sucked into the whole thing. Yeah, and I don't think it struggles from. It's a longer format, so obviously the be, it's the best of 33, I think, in the semi-finals, which mm. is quite a drawn-out kind mm. of match. You know, it's it's uh, a lot of frames, but I think that's part of the attraction too, and that. They get sucked into tactical battles and the tension. I don't know if either of you have been been at the cruise and have, at a yeah, snooker event. Yeah. Like I, it must be you, you can really yeah, sense the tension. It's amazing and like if you, I mean, if you haven't played snooker as well, like you should definitely, if you're res- relatively young, give it a go because it's yeah. an amazing game if you get into it at all. Yeah, no, it is. And the tables uh, deceptively big. That's my uh, really insight. Well, I thought I was all right in pool, snooker. like, but then I was I couldn't even hit the ball. I remember like uh, this is a, this is very very quick and I'm I'm going over the timer. I ended up <laughs> yes, on a flight back from the cruise with Niall Quinn right who was at a game that day and he was on and I was saying to Niall right 
I'm so bad at snooker. If it was down to the black, right? It was literally down to the black, and I was eight points behind, and I was playing a professional. I'm sorry, I was eight points in front, but it was down to the black, and it was me against professional. Who'd win? All he would, he'd be reliant on just me not hitting the black ball uh, at some point, and I'd say, yeah, he probably will beat me at some point. I won't be able to pot it, and at one point, I'll actually miss the black entirely. Yes, yeah, and then that's a foul, and then he just wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think. <laughs> like Quinn was like, there. "Who is this weirdo?" I, I do need to move on, but I, I, pro- <laughs> I, I, I promise the people that we will come back to Johnny Ward's take that there will be no accents in Ireland in the future. We're, we're, we will that's, come back to that in the future. True. I'm not. Not sure that's true. Here we've, here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio today. At one o'clock is OTB Goals, Jerry Eisenberg. Three o'clock, Stuart Lancaster's episode three. Retro panel on GA Democracy from four o'clock. And at six o'clock is OTB Goals, the story of Declan Murphy. Just ask your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio. And you can, of course, listen to OTB as a radio show live every morning on OTB Sports Radio and the OTB Sports app. After the break, we're previewing the Katie Taylor fight with CBS Sports' Brian Campbell. But first, Team OTB are taking on Triathai this June. It's all in partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. One of our higher profile participants is of course Brian O'Driscoll and he spoke with Jar ahead of the training refuting claims that he may have an unfair advantage over other OTB athletes OTB AM <laughs> on OTB Sports Radio Ireland's first and only sports radio station Not the ball's the best number one it's the goat of sports apps talk about the greatest of all time Nathan you know Big Joe Big Joe's the greatest of all time he's the goat we know it <laughs> So Every single me. time. Yes. It's, yes. It's tough going. It's it's tough for my ego. I, I'm going to say I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. This is OTB Sports Radio. Download the OTB Sports app now. Well, you are uh, also part of Team OTB for this, which gives you a slight unfair advantage, I would have to say, versus the rest of us. Unfair advantage also heaped major, major pressure on me to deliver and as any ex-athlete would attest you know the competitive edge is always exists in you but then you realize you took for granted all of the work that was done as a professional and how you're not willing to do that work as a non-professional or, or as a retired professional and so the expectation's still there but the delivery not so much see i would i would take that at face value uh, if if you like most professionals had let yourself go but clearly you know uh, you're you're still training harder now than you were when you were actually an athlete <laughs> Do you know what? If triathlon was in the weights room, I'd give it a good go, right? <laughs> if it was thrown around a bit of tin, um, I'd, I'd stand a chance. But I haven't yet gotten on a bike. In fact, when I retired, I got all the gear. I got everything. And I have all of my cycling gear still in their boxes upstairs. <laughs> or at least I think they are somewhere in the house. Um, so I have to go and start learning how to ride a bike again. Uh, because that's the leg that I'm do that I'm gonna do. Literally, she had the whole final period You'd of space. <laughs> you were a killer. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. On her own shores, obviously, uh, smaller crowds, but no, no less excitement <laughs> in the WNL this week. I mean, they just seem to be a team full of winners. Being on top of the league doesn't phase them. That's where they expect mm. to be. At this point, yeah, I think I'm tipping Chelsea. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette 
Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. We are just a couple of days out for one of the biggest events in the history of women's boxing. It is, of course, Katie Taylor against Amanda Serrano at the Garden on Saturday night. And to help us preview this massive event, it is Brian Campbell of CBS and Showtime. Brian, good morning to you. Thanks, Millie, for taking the call. Oh, come on. I'm fired the heck up for big time fights. And now we've got, <laughs> I don't know, the biggest women's fight in the history of organized boxing. Yeah, I can wake up early for this one. Come on. For, for boxing fans, it's an easy one to get on board with. How much has this started to move the dial in the United States when it comes to casual sports fans and casual boxing fans? I, I would say slowly but steadily. I think the, the the drums are starting to get banged because, look, um, you know, the UFC, the MMA in general has done an incredible job at making their women's divisions matter, making the stakes high, making the the competition level high. Women's boxing has really just had such a... a, a it's been behind for so long, you know, and I'm certainly old enough to remember when superstars and now Hall of Famers like a Christy Martin were big time featured fighters or a Layla Ali, who was absolutely a legit or an Ann Wolf or you can name any of them. But really, those are few and far between. And sometimes, you know, when you look back at those days in the 90s of Don King putting Christy Martin in prominent pay-per-view cards, it was still an attraction. I think we're in for the first time the golden era of women's boxing being treated as legitimate boxing. And I think this is the perfect fight at the perfect time for that. Has it caught on with casual sports fans in America? I, I want to say not yet, although we got a, you know, a couple days left, but I'm very happy to see at the very least the boxing fan base, which I'm sure, you know, from your side of the pond can be a, can be a, uh, a dark critical bunch. They have embraced this fight full bore, embraced the hyperbole around it of saying it's the most important women's fight, you know, in terms of stakes, pound for pound rankings that we've arguably ever had. And I think a big part of that is obviously the success of Katie Taylor globally, but but promoters like Eddie Hearn and now Jake Paul committing to making this feel big. If you would have asked me a year ago, are Serrano and Taylor on a collision course to a very interesting fight? I would have said yes. If you would have said, hey, hey, B.C., New York's Madison Square Garden. I've been like, uh, yeah, maybe on the prelims, right? Or you know what I mean? Like, no, they got the full treatment, the best treatment you can possibly get, and they deserve it. And the only thing I'm here to tell you negative about this fight is if you ever needed a fight to finally kick the doors down and get rid of two-minute rounds for women, get rid of 10-round distances and title bouts, this would have been it. I know Team Serrano tried to push for it for whatever reason. Katie Taylor was hesitant, but I think that's the only thing lacking in this being a celebration of what it is. And that's women's boxing being treated on an equal plane about damn time, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a lot of things to get into there. And I guess just to stick with that theme of trying to capture the public consciousness in, in the States, they both appeared on the Today Show this week. And it's really interesting when you see Katie Taylor in public places trying to sell a fight. I guess other people are trying to sell a fight. She's trying to win a fight. Uh, she has made no bones about the fact that she just doesn't really engage in trash talk. But it seems that Amanda Serrano is pretty OK with that as well. There's a huge amount of respect between the two of them. I don't know, Brian. I think that there's a bit of a unique selling point in the world of combat sports for respect and for two people who actually like each other. It's like, what is this? This does, this does not feel normal. This feels a little bit. I new. know. It, but at the same time, it's refreshing, right? Because normally you have to do that whether you're male or female, to add attention to it. This fight, because, again, it's been given big-time stakes, main event, Madison Square Garden, 
a lot of that has spoken for it. But but again, look, you know, as much as I'm going to sit here and and shout out Eddie Hearn, I mean, Jake Paul's ability to get in this conversation relatively late to scoop up Serrano, who's been, you know, American boxing's best kept secret in so many ways, fighting for peanuts on literally any network she can grab onto. Now you've got Jake Paul who love him or hate him or whatever you believe his role is in boxing right now. He demands an audience. He gets people from outside boxing to care. So it has allowed these two great athletes to to focus on being professional. Now, Team Serrano, a little bit more spicy than Team Taylor. If you spend any time around Amanda Serrano's brother-in-law slash manager slash trainer, Jordan Maldonado, he loves he loves to stir the pot and get the fireworks going. But but to your point, it's 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 been about what it's about respect. And let's find out who's the best fighter of this era. And it's rare in male or female boxing. And it's a joy when we can get number one and two or, or three or whatever, pound for pound, you know, we can get two guys, two women in the top five to fight each other. Cause that's the best play. That's the best way to, to separate yourself from the pack. And part of why this fight happening now is perfect. And, and it's easy to make is because let's give Amanda Serrano some credit. She's, of course, the most decorated female fighter in boxing history in terms of titles in multiple weight classes, well, I think five up to this point. But she's literally willing on the drop of a hat with one training camp's time to fight anywhere from 118 to 140 pounds. That, that alone does not get talked about enough. Her willingness, and Clarissa Shields, also another big-time star in this women's movement, is also as willing to basically say wherever the big fight is, I need to be there. I'm going to get my body there. No excuses. I'm going to show up. If you like the purity of the sport, right? Forget the trash talking. You like the purity of, of not fighting for, for money, but fighting for greatness. This is what this fight is all about. It's got that old school feel, and I love it. It's kind of ironic, Frank. You're talking about this being such a pure fight and kind of a bit of a throwback almost and level of respect. But then on the other side of the equation, you've got that Paul involvement. I'm just curious, you've spoken about the escalation of the stakes here and the escalation of the platform. How much is his involvement helping to raise our profile? Or is he a smart guy getting on a train that was already leaving the station? And do we kind of understand what his motivations are for getting involved here? Because he's really got himself a front seat in this event, which is going to go down in boxing history. And so with his name. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, meaning, you know, he's he got lucky in terms of, OK, he wants to get into boxing, which he's done with his pay-per-view cards, whether you think they're carnival or legit. And, you know, let's give him credit in the celebrity bubble. He's he's pretty damn good. He takes it seriously, but he's looking for a bigger picture statement to make on his involvement in combat sports in a short period of time. Some of that involves the. The, the fighting he does with UFC's Dana White and the, and the attempts to try to lure those fighters over. But was it advantageous for him to get into the promotional game at the same time? And it just so happens that one of the best fighters in the world, regardless of gen gender, as I mentioned, Amanda Serrano, just never got the real promotional push that's in line with her skill set. Yeah, it worked out perfectly. But to his credit, in, in Nikisa, uh, his his promoter, of his partner there in MVP Promotions, who uh, who ironically comes from the UFC, was a former COO. But, you know, they, they have the knowledge collectively. They've got the platform. But I think they've done a great job at getting Amanda paid. And that's been regardless of who she's faced on this journey. They've thrown her in the co-main event on the Jake Paul pay-per-view cards, which have, again, brought a different audience. I've been there for the Jake Paul pay-per-views. There's, there's like a, a, a young gamer audience. There's not, it's not a traditional boxing audience by any means that has been important. So whether he's doing it to try to 
paint himself strategically as a Robin Hood of boxing, as a guy who's coming in, even though all the arguments are about UFC fighter pay, right? But yet he's trying to be this Robin Hood. Again, I don't care if his intentions are right on or if you think his intentions are right on. It's kind of working. He's got Amanda to this stage. Eddie Hearn and DeZone needed to step in on the state side as well and say, we want to make this a big deal. They did. Um, you mentioned the Today Show. I didn't even I wasn't even aware they were on the Today Show and I watched the Today Show regularly. So, yeah, this has made a a, a continued crossover footprint. And, and can I shout out one more entity uh, this Saturday, April 30th? It's not just this Taylor Serrano fight, but there's another really, really, really big boxing fight in the States in Las Vegas. Shakur Stevenson, Oscar Valdez, two unbeatens for, for junior lightweight titles. They've agreed ESPN and company to start their main event later. So we're not going to head to head. Now they're claiming also it's for the goodwill of the sport. Again, whatever their intentions are, the fans win, the fighters win. We can see both great fights now staggered in terms of the main events. So um, yeah, man, uh, I, again, I don't care if Jake Paul's doing it for, for the wrong reasons. The right result is happening. I guess it's just been so many people who've been doing it for the wrong reasons, for sure, but also not getting great results or getting incorrect outcomes, I guess, for the fighters for so long in this game that this kind of makes it a bit of a breath of fresh air, if I can even go that far. And like, like how pervasive do you think this will be over the next little while in terms of Jake Paul's influence specifically? Because obviously his beef with Dana White has been very public and you mentioned the UFC fighters conditions there. Is he going to be the guy who single-handedly changes things like that? Or do you think other, I guess, people of power within combat sports will wake up and realize what Jake is about to do and, and say, listen, we need to change it ourselves? Are you are you saying in regards to women's boxing and his in his women's boxing and, and also conditions for UFC fighters? Yeah, I mean, can can Jake Paul actually make change in the UFC fighter pay game? In one point, you could say it doesn't matter because, you know, there's no circumstance in which Dana White right now is going to let a UFC fighter under contract go across the street and box Jake Paul, whether that's fair or not. But he's continuing the conversation to the point where on the UFC endeavor, their parent company earnings call, it was brought up. It was brought up. How much is the influence of Jake Paul constantly berating the fighter pay argument changing things? So I think he's going to make nominal change. But again, I think he's doing that more selfishly to try to lure those guys across the street, get them out of their deals and fight him. And again, I think the same thing might be true in his Robin Hood performance in championing women's boxing. It may be he's only into this fight because Serrano didn't have a bigger trainer and he wants to get looked at as a positive movement in boxing because, look, he's trying to crash the party in the pay-per-view market in all of combat sports, and he's done decently well. So he's going to be looked at as a clown. So it's not a bad PR move to embrace Serrano, embrace this fight. Will it have change and, and fallout for women's boxing positively? I, I think if the fight's great, people want to see more. Maybe they want to see a rematch or a third fight or at least see where each female fighter is going to go out of this fight. But I think in general, it's the right right moments, the right people, the right fighters, the right promoters, the right networks at the right time if women's boxing in this modern day era is going to go somewhere legit. I think the thing that the, the sport has missed in the thing that MMA does have in the women's game is a, a good amount of elite fighters fighting together. The, the problem in women's boxing was not only were they not getting the pay or the platform, there's just not a lot of great fighters still across the board. That's why so many of these fights, they throw on vacant titles. You know, I think Clarissa Shields, and this is not, not a knock against her ambition or her ability, she's an undisputed champion in multiple weight classes because there's just nobody else. That changed, I think, 
because of women's boxing being added to the Olympics. It began the legitimacy of a of a farm system. It produced a, a Katie Taylor who's who's, you know, so ready to take on this mantle as the face of women's boxing. It produced a Clarissa Shields who won two gold medals. I think that could have some great positive outlook long term mixed with the the the, the attention around this fight to just basically give, uh, you know, young female athletes a, a, another avenue should they want to. And, and it's about damn time because uh, these are great fighters. And it goes back to why this, the, the idea of still doing two minute rounds and 10 minute, 10 round fights. It just, it, it's just, it's a joke. I mean, it, it, it prevents these women stars from getting the knockouts that they might need to, to, to legitimize themselves even more. It prevents fun. I mean, it prevents, uh, you know, uh, entertainment. So um, all things considered, the pressure is on Taylor and Serrano to carry this sport to the next level. But how are they going to fail? Guys, how is this fight going to be anything but a barn burner? Have you watched these ladies? They are one and two pound for pound for a reason. They're all so exciting as all heck and go after it. I could not be more excited about what's going to go down Saturday and how that you know affects the future of women's boxing moving forward. Just one quick one there, Brian. You've mentioned the kind of round length uh, discussion. Um, how far do you think we are away from that change coming? And also the fact that Katie Taylor shot down that conversation so quickly, do you think there's kind of a strategic um, element to that, that it kind of suits her style better than kind of, you know, maybe prevents some of the heavy trading that Amanda Serrano might be looking for? I absolutely think that was a smart strategic performance by Katie Taylor, who you got to understand she's the A side of this, you know, from a business standpoint, no, no question about it. She's already proven herself on the, you know, on the world stage as a draw as legitimate where Serrano sort of catching up, you know, in sort of the of a commercial sense, it was strategic. Why? Because look, uh, Katie Taylor's more of an output aggressive boxer. And in the two minute window that really allows her to get advantages. She's also going in against a pure power puncher in Serrano, a southpaw who carries that weight, that power up and down the scales, wherever she goes. It's the one thing we always say, why, why has Clarissa Shields, despite her great success, not become an American star? She had to go to MMA. She had to go to the PFL to try to, you know, make the money she feels she deserves. Sometimes you have to say, maybe she's being robbed of the chance to get these knockouts in the three minute window. So is, is Katie Taylor, who let's give her credit. She said, why didn't you negotiate this? ahead of time if you wanted this so badly, right? We already signed the contract. In that regard, I'm not going to damn Katie. I get this is a strategic move. It, it should help her. But you want to talk about entertainment? These two these two put, put it on. I mean, these two let their hands go. So we're going to get 10 wild two-minute rounds for as long as this thing lasts. Uh, strategic uh, decision or not by Katie Taylor. You mentioned Jordan Maldonado a moment ago, and he in the behind the scenes videos that's part of uh, Jake Paul's production company for this. No, these videos aren't that viewed as like a, a separate YouTube channel, which I assumed had had a lot more coverage of it or a few more eyeballs on it. But he gave a pretty good insight to how they're looking at Katie Taylor. He, he says she's 35. She needs to win now. She's on our last legs. Bad things are going to start happening to her after this over the next couple of years. And she's obviously a couple of years down the track in comparison to Amanda Serrano, which is uh, an interesting kind of juxtaposition to maybe some of Taylor's last few fights where there is this idea that maybe she is slowing down a little bit. Like, I guess if you want to to really kind of look at, at Taylor, you could make the point that actually she's going to show up and it really matters this weekend if, you, if you're really hopeful for Taylor. So there's been a couple of things that we're hearing. Obviously, Maldonado is going to say something like that. But what's the truth here? What, what What's your eye telling you when you're watching Taylor over the last little while? 
Um, look, you know, first and foremost, this is the right fight at the right time. Taylor might be 35. Serrano might be 33, but they're in their absolute combination of physical and mental prime. So I have no doubt that it's it's an even fight. Is Taylor closer to the end? Probably. Are the recent performances suggestions that she's slowing? I it, It's hard to tell because, look, there's levels to this game. And I do believe there is a core of five, six seven, maybe truly elite women's fighters today. Everybody else is a step down. Now that that step down, there's levels within that too. But when I've seen Taylor against the very best, two things stood out to me. One, she's able to raise her game to another level. And that's a key to, to the magic of what she brings there and why it's easy to follow her, her humility, her, you know, her honest style, her hard work. I mean, it, it's easy to get seduced into that. But I did see her in that incredible two-fight series with Delphine Pursun. So can we put some respect on that on that police mm-hmm. officer's name? And look, I thought Pursun won the first fight. And I thought she did. I was there ringside at Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, it could have been a draw. It could have gone either way. But I saw a fighter willing to risk it all in Pursun, risk, risk her face, and just walk into the pressure that Katie Taylor's used to putting on and just go after it. If you're Team Serrano, can you talk yourself into the idea that Taylor's a little bit older, that this may, you know, this is her Super Bowl, that maybe she's been holding it together for, you know, the best she can lately. But if you're a great fighter who's also a great pressure fighter, which Serrano can be, Serrano can do it all. Understand that. Serrano can do it all in the ring. Can they, can they break her? I think you have your team, you know, Serrano, you have to talk yourself into that idea. You saw Pursun, who's a little bit less, who's a little bit more limited, a little bit more raw, actually a lot more raw, to be fair. Really find the the vulnerable spot on how you stand up and deal with a Katie Taylor. Because uh, to be fair, because there's not an elite set across the board, each division, Sometimes I think Katie Taylor's in there where she can rely on just her technique or just her pressure to get wins. Serrano can absolutely do it all. So is there truth to what they're saying? There might be kernels of it, but I think at the end of the day, they're they're big talkers. They want to talk themselves into it. They want to talk everyone else into believing them. And I can't stress this enough. Hang around Jordan Mall, not long enough. You're going to see some wild things. I've called, I've called uh, maybe, maybe Amanda Serrano's biggest win to this state uh, was when she fought the champion from a lower weight class, Daniel Bermudez in Puerto Rico. I called that fight ringside. Maldonado got thrown out of that fight during it for, for, for yelling at everybody. I've seen him get thrown out of press events. He says a lot of stuff, but I do think there's some, there's some levels of truth to this. If you're really looking at it, and obviously the, the betting oddsmans are, and I've seen the, the odds go back and forth, but I've also seen Serrano more often than not as the betting favorite. We know Katie Taylor doesn't trash talk, but one comment that I saw from her was kind of, saying that Serrano's never been dragged into deep water. She's never kind of been in a war. She doesn't know what that's like. We don't know what's going to happen. Is that a fair statement to make, just for people who wouldn't have seen as much of her rise as you have, or is that a bit of an oversimplification? (laughs) It's a great question. So in in light of everything I said with there being levels, with there being a smaller amount of truly elite women's boxers than you would want to at this point, have I seen her in, in action fights? Yes, but but more often than not, she's the dictator of the pace, of the space, of the power being thrown out there. Um, that might actually be true as well. See, Amanda Serrano has yet to find her Delphine Pursuit. Yeah, she's already lost in, in, you know, earlier in her career, but in terms of the modern Amanda Serrano, who we've seen over the past five, six, seven years, she hasn't found really her equal in there. I thought Daniela Bermudez could be that, 
And Serrano's ability to, to, to find, you know, find the power shots in the big moment, whether she's pressuring, whether she's counterpunching, whether she's leading the dance with the jab. Again, she can do it all. No, I don't think she's actually been against somebody on her same level in that deep of a 50-50 all-action fight. So that's part of what makes handicapping this so fun is that whether you thought Taylor won the first pursuit fight or not, and by the way, the rematch was, was awesome. It was a great fight as well. Um, you know that she's been tested at that level. Uh, I tend to believe Amanda Serrano can swim in any pool at any length at any distance against anybody, but uh, that's a big part of heading into there. Some of the things we don't know yet, and we have to see Saturday night. Can we ask you to call it? Have you got to a point where you feel confident doing so? Okay, I, I think Amanda Serrano is more skilled, has more options, and that that gap in power, I think, could be big. Now, she has a lot more knockouts than Katie Taylor. Some of that, though, to be fair, has come at the lower weight classes. She won titles at 118 pounds. If you haven't followed Serrano's rise, and part of this mirrors the fact that she didn't get big promotional push or the paydays, there's, there's certain calendar years in which she's fighting at 118 one night, Four months later, she's fighting at 135, right? Two, three months later, she's back down to 126. So she has fought a lot of smaller opponents, and she's absolutely blown them away. But I, I've seen enough of her to know her power carries late. Her power comes out in different varieties, right? Like she can, she can, she can produce power as a counterpuncher, as, as a boxer, as any situation. What Taylor has best going for her is those pockets of pressure are so tight technically. Like you'll never say Katie Taylor's a brawler, right? No, she, she's so technically taught, well-taught, but she carries such a high pace. She stands right in front of you, and she gets off accurate combinations that in the, in the, in the two-minute rounds, that's hard to beat. Uh, I tend to believe if somebody can raise their game to a level we have not seen yet, it is Amanda Serrano, and I believe in her. The southpaw, the power, the boxing ability. This fight can go either way. The odds are telling you it's a virtual pick em, but if I had to lean one way, I think Amanda Serrano's power could end up being the difference, but she has to make Katie Taylor take a back foot step. She's got to do some of the things Pursun did and more, right? You can't just meet Katie's Taylor, Katie Taylor's pressure with pressure and hope that's enough because Taylor does adjust very well. You've got to hurt her. Pursun uh, at times, at times, right? Wore Katie down, but Katie kept finding another gear. Does Serrano have the power to, to shut that gear down? She does. That's why I'm favoring her to win this. Okay, very interesting. Well, Brian, you've hyped us up nicely for this on Saturday night. It's a must-watch. It is Katie Taylor against Amanda Serrano. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. You've been listening to Brian Campbell of CBS and Showtime and Morning Combat as well. Brian, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Yeah, myself and Joe Conroy in conversation with Brian there before we came on air ahead of fight night this weekend at Madison Square Garden. Just before we let you go this morning, Paul Joyce of The Times is reporting that Jurgen Klopp is set to extend his Liverpool contract. Massive news for Liverpool Football Club this morning. Uh, if that is something that is going to, to come through over the next little while, apparently they're in conversations around it. The previous reports had been that come June 2024, Jurgen Klopp will be out of the club, uh, that his appetite had uh, seemingly dissipated and that, that he would be gone after this latest contract expired. But that appetite is back, that petrol is back in the tank and Jurgen Klopp wants to extend his contract. And uh, I'd say whatever Jurgen Klopp wants, he will get from Liverpool Football Club at the moment. So that'll go beyond the nine years it'll be at the end of the 2024 season if he puts pen to paper on that. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Be sure to follow off the ball across all our social media channels and download the OTB Sports 
Sports app for your latest and best sports content and there'll be more on that Klopp news throughout the day no doubt join us tomorrow morning from half past seven where I'll be here with Adrian and we'll run through our GEA quick picks ahead of the weekend's action we'll chat rugby with Ronan O'Gara and we'll have ex-West Ham United winger Matt Jarvis to chat Premier League with us so a new voice on the show tomorrow morning and of course the crappy quiz your highlight every single Friday morning